Sunday, it's 7, and it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the big broadcast, Radio Theater from WAMU 88.5. Hi, everybody. I'm Murray Horwitz, and tonight we'll hear a science fiction version of what America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator might have sounded like in outer space on X-1. We'll visit with Gertrude Berg of the Goldbergs, hear from Norman Corwin on the first leg of his One World Flight, and follow the progress of Laman Abner's Get Rich Quick scheme, plus Gunsmoke, Dragnet, and a rare look at a 1930s Broadway sensation, Machinal, on a legendary theater producer's series, Arthur Hopkins Presents. So, there's no reason to worry about the problems of last week. It's over. And there's plenty of time to worry about next week, beginning tomorrow. Just relax, and let your imagination do the work here on your Sunday Night Oasis, The Big Broadcast. New York's Long Island is, well, long, but almost as long is Padre Island, off the coast of Texas. You generally get there from Corpus Christi, and that's where several meta-moments took place on the radio over the years, including on our show last week. They feature a character named Doug Johnstone, the brother, we're told, of the real-life writer of our weekly curtain raisers, Jack Johnstone. The character appears in tonight's episode called The Perilous Padre Matter, It comes from August 13th, 1961, CBS, and yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Johnny Dollar. No, try Western Life down here in Corpus Christi. Well, sure I know. How are you, Jackson? Pretty good, pretty good. You're all upset over some insurance problem. Well, no, not really. Don't tell me you called up just to pass the time of day and on the company's phone bill. No, not that either. Well, then? Uh, tell me, Johnny, did you ever hear of the Padre Island treasure... I never even heard of Padre Island. Wait a minute. Sure. Are you talking about that long strip of sand and stuff out there in the Gulf? That's it. Runs down the coastline from Corpus almost all the way down to Mexico. That's Padre Island, all 115 miles of it. I didn't realize it was that long. It sure is. And like you said, that narrow finger of land, uh, sometimes a couple, sometimes 10 or 12 miles off the coast, goes all the way from here down to the northeast corner of Mexico. Uh Uh-huh. Uh, that's why it's going to be so hard to find that old Spanish ship, uh, what remains of it. What are you talking about? Loaded with Spanish doubloons. A lot of solid gold bullion, and heaven knows what else. You mean you want me down there to hunt for treasure? Among, uh, other things. Ah, there's a hitch to it. What other things? Pretty good bait, though, wasn't it? That treasure fish. What other things, Jackson? Uh, why don't you come on down here and see? On expense account. That's right, on expense account. Okay, you've asked for it. I'll grab a plane first thing in the morning. The CBS Radio Network brings you Mandel Kramer and the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. (laughs) 
sets of cards submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Tri-Western Life Insurance Company office in Corpus Christi. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the perilous Padre matter. Expense account item one, $128 even. Plane fare and incidentals to Corpus Christi, Texas. It was late the next morning when I got there, and to my surprise, Jack Price wasn't at the municipal airport to meet me. So I grabbed a taxi, that's item two, a couple of bucks and a half, to the Robert Driscoll Hotel at the corner of Antelope and North Broadway. Checked in, unpacked my bag, cleaned up, and then proceeded to walk over to Price's office in the Cats building. But as I rounded the corner onto Lawrence Street, I passed the big stockbroker's office there, and okay, buddy, you feel this in the middle of your back? I feel it. Then I straight ahead and keep walking. Act natural, see? You think you can get away with this in broad daylight? This here now, 38 caliber Roscoe, is the answer to that. You keep walking or I'll blow a hole in you so big you could shove an expense account through it. Oh, please, consider my poor sick wife and 13 starving children. You think that sob stuff will get you anywhere so you can try it on Big Nick and the rest of the mob. We don't like you eastern hoods cutting in on our territory, see? You try any fancy capers here in Corpus, and you're going to find out that you're the Corpus, see? Now, that's a funny, so you better laugh, see? Better not laugh. <laughs> I'm sorry, Doug, but I'm weeping because you'll never make it. Oh, sir, you cut me to the quick. I thought that was a pretty good performance <laughs> in the fine old Johnstone tradition. Johnstone tradition? I'll tell you this. Your brother Jack will never put it in the script when he writes up this case of mine for broadcast. I'm crushed. All kidding aside, Doug, I'm glad to see you. How are you? Fine, Johnny, fine. Why doesn't that brother of mine let me know in advance when you're coming down here? Doug, are you forgetting that he can't dramatize these insurance investigations for the air until after they're done and over with? Well, I, I guess you've got a point there. But how'd you find out so soon? Well, that's just the point, Doug. I didn't. You, you what? Mr. Johnstone, I will have you know that at this moment, I haven't the least idea what I'm supposed to be investigating down here. Hmm. Well, then maybe I have. Oh? You were, um, on your way to Jack Price's office? That's right. Try Western Life over in the... Why, what's the matter? You, uh, won't find him there. Well, where will I... Wait a minute, what goes? Well, Jackson Price and I have been good friends ever since I moved down here, Johnny. I know you have. I guess that's why his wife called me this morning to see if I knew what had happened to him. Now, when she told me that he'd phoned to you last night, asked you to come down here... Well, then I wondered if you and he had gone out there together. Gone where, Doug? But when I thought about it and realized you couldn't have got on down here soon enough for the two of you to have gone out there together last night... Doug, gone where? Uh, which wouldn't have made any sense anyway. I mean, going out there at night. Doug. But then, last night was the last she saw of him. Doug, that bush you're beating around. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I know. Come on, Johnny. You and I had better round up some equipment and get out there without wasting any time. Get out where, Doug? Padre Island. Oh. Yes. And let's hope that... Well, let's hope we find Jackson still alive out there. Johnstown spoke of rounding up some equipment. He meant getting hold of the beach buggy, a sort of contraption that was just as much at home on soft sand as on a paved highway. 
Turned out to be a Jeep with a set of the biggest, fattest tires on it I'd ever seen. Doug borrowed it from a friend of his by the name of Obie O'Brien, who was very, very curious about where we were going and why. I thought I told you, Obie. Johnny here is absolutely nuts about fishing. Oh, sure, Obie. Why else do you think I'd come all the way down here to Corpus Christi? Well, from what I've heard about you, Johnny... Uh... Well, then, Johnny. Uh, we'll see you later, Obie. Uh, sure, but uh, from what I've heard about you, Johnny... From what I've heard, Obie, we ought to have some pretty good luck over in the surf over on Padre. Well, just answer me one thing. If you two are going fishing, where's the tackle? Oh, we'll pick up whatever we need at my place. Oh, fishing, huh? Well, what else? Uh, let's go, Johnny. Sure. You, uh, you sure you don't want me along, too? Now, you know that three's a crowd in this rig of yours. Oh, it is, huh? And besides, why should I let you in the secret of all my pet spots over there on the island? Well, okay. Okay, I can take a hint, but I don't believe either of you guys. I mean about going fishing. And I'd still like to know, Dr. Obie, if curiosity killed people like it's supposed to kill cats, you'd be dead ten times over. So what's wrong with being curious? O'Brien, my boy, it'll only get you into trouble. So what's wrong with a little trouble now and then? <laughs> we'll see you later, Obie. But at Doug's house on Hinman Drive, instead of loading up with fishing tackle... He threw in a couple of long-handled shovels, a couple of jeep cans of extra gas, a can of water, and, most important of all, he said, was an old but well-oiled 30-30 Winchester and a box of cartridges. It's better throw some shells into it, Johnny. I don't like toting a loaded gun in a car any more than you do, but I think we'd better be prepared for anything. We tore on up to the north end of town, then across the new causeway to Padre Island through the park, then headed south on the so-called highway that stretches from one end of that long, narrow, sandy island to the other. Then, and only then, did Doug tell me what it was all about. And he unfolded one of the most fascinating bits of history I've heard in a long time. You see, Johnny, it goes back to the year 1553, when a Spanish treasure fleet, 20 ships or more, set out from Veracruz, Mexico... Loaded down with more gold and jewels than you can shake a stick at. The treasure that Jack Price told me about over the phone. Just let me get on to the story. Sure, go ahead. Now, somewhere along the line, they ran into a terrific storm. Mm-hmm. That sent three of those galleons to the bottom, and at least three of them. No wonder there's so much treasure hunting off the lower coast of Florida. Right. Now, some of the ships got through that storm and kept on eastward. But most of them came back westward hoping to get back to Mexico in safety, maybe to the port of Tampico. Tampico? Right. Now, that's about 400 miles south of here. Uh-huh. Anyhow, they must have hit another storm, because 13 of those treasure ships came aground here on Padre Island. No kidding. A few of the survivors managed to get across from the lower end of it to what is now the Rio Grande Valley town of Port Isabel. I see. And the rest of them made a tasty meal or two for the people who lived on this island... Karankawa Indians. They were cannibals. Cannibals? Yeah, ouch. Anyhow, sometime later, a salvage fleet came on from Spain under the leadership of a Don Angel de la something or other, found most of the wrecks and took the gold off them back home. You say he found most of the wrecks, huh? Uh, One of them, Johnny, with its load of Spanish doubloons and bars of solid gold, is still somewhere under the sands of this island. And Jackson has found out where... Well, one of Jack's clients, a young fellow named Jose Pineda, uh, found a chart 
In the false bottom of an old wooden chest he was about to throw out. Here on this island? Yeah, according to this chart, it was from one of the treasure ships, and... Hey, wait a minute. Whose car is that? Huh? Parked there at the side of the road. Probably just a breakdown. There's nobody around. Go on. Yeah, well, now this chart I was talking about called for taking bearings on a Spanish dagger plant. The other markers were an old anchor and three heavy brass spikes, all of them, no doubt, buried in the sand. But now, with dagger plants around here by the thousands... Yeah, I wondered about that. Go on, though, Doug. This buried treasure bit's getting to me. Well, you're not the first, believe me. Anyhow, back in the 1840s, a man who'd settled here on the island, he was digging around. He uncovered a chest full of jewelry and gold coins worth over 80,000 bucks. That was before inflation. Right. But the Civil War came along, brought a lot of naval activity in these waters. So the old man buried all the stuff again and fled up north. And? Later, when he came back to look for it, well, he never found it again. And nobody else has, huh? Oh, there's lots of stories, Johnny. But until young Jose Pineda found that chart... And then found the wreck? That's what I'm not sure of. Jackson Price is the only one he told about that chart. Swore him to secrecy at least until Jose himself could dig around a bit. Well, how come you know about it, Doug? Well, Jose equipped himself with all sorts of modern detecting apparatus, some kind of combination radar, sonar, a new type of mine detector, all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. Then, early last week, he told Price he thought he'd found something. Yeah? Yeah. Told him he'd be back to Corpus day before yesterday morning at the latest, pick up Price, and the two of them would come down here and dig it up. I see. Go on. Only Jose was worried about something. About the man he bought some of his equipment from. A fellow named uh, Tony Larker. Kind of a beachcomber in these parts. You thought maybe this Larker had gotten wise to what he was after? Well, that's what Jackson thought, too. Anyhow, yesterday morning came and Jose Pineda still hadn't shown up. Jackson got worried. I don't blame him. So he looked all over for Tony Larker. Couldn't find him either. That's when he confided in me told me that he was coming down here for a look around. Well, did he tell you exactly where? Well, only approximately. So keep an eye out for Price's beach buggy. It's an old Model T that he's rigged up. I sure hope he's all right. He's found Jose okay and... Hold everything. Yeah? Up ahead there on the right, back that big mass of yuccas. Hey, you're right. You've got good eyes. That's his beach buggy, all right. Hang on, Johnny. Yeah. Yeah, it's an old treasure hunting spot. Look, Doug, somebody's working in it. I caught the flash of a shovel. Well, thank goodness. That means that Jackson's okay. Skirt around that big mound on the left. Right. It looks a little smoother over there. Yeah. Oh, sooner said than done. Hang on. Hey, you were right. This is a lot better. It's a better approach to that hollowed-out spot, too. Only, what's happened to Jackson? Where is he now? Well, there's buggy still there. Slow down a minute, Doug. Shouldn't Jose Panetta's car be out here, too? Yeah, you're right. You sure it was Jackson in that hollow? Well, who else could it have been? Well, why did he duck out of sight when he saw us coming? I don't like the looks of this. Hey, hey, he's shooting at us. Let's get out of this thing and around the back of him. Way ahead of you. Listen, that, that bullet through the windshield was too close for comfort. Wait a minute. I can just reach that old 30-30 in the back without making a target of myself. 
There it is. Be careful, will you? Stay down. Johnny. I, I, I don't get it. I'm afraid I do. That isn't Jackson pulling off those shots. Well, it certainly isn't Jose Pineda. I know that he wouldn't. Larker. Tony Larker. Sure. If there really is all that treasure out here, if Jose and Jackson found it, and if Larker found that out... Where are they, then, Jose and Jackson? Let's just hope they're still alive. What do we do, Johnny? With only a couple of sand dunes and a few Spanish dagger plants between us, we're like sitting ducks for Larker. As long as we don't get out from behind this jeep. Hey, that one hit one of the tires, you hear it? Yeah, there's another one. All right, Doug, if he wants to play at war, we can too. You mean try to shoot it out with him? Uh, first of all, if I can reach one of these shovels in the back, we'll dig ourselves in. Huh? Then, sit here and wait for darkness, which isn't too far away now. Yeah, and then? Well, there are two of us, Doug. Maybe if we handle it right, we can surround him. You uh, feeling brave, old boy? Johnny, I'm just as scared as you are. Okay, then. Let's map out our plan of action. We didn't have to wait for dark. Old Mother Nature suddenly stepped in and gave us a hand with one of the quickest, windiest, wettest thunderstorms that ever came up out of the Gulf. Doug and I separated them. He with that 30-30 rifle, me with the only handgun that I always carry. In the darkness, he circled wide to the right, firing an occasional shot in the hope of drawing the fire and the attention of Larkin. There in the protection of that big hollow in the sand. Most of the light now came from the lightning, and I ran and stumbled over the dunes through the clumps of yucca. And then as I got close, got down in my belly, and I was about to make the sneak into the hollow. Oh, no! Johnny! Johnny! Larker's got away! Oh, I heard him take off and fright his car. Only thing we can do is go back to our buggy and... Those oh. tires. Yeah. How are we going to get... Hey, Johnny, look. Did you see them? Two of them down there in the hollow. Come on. Jackson. Johnny. Jack, Jack. What happened here? That bullet crease on the top of your head. Larker. All right, Jackson. Take it easy now. But Jose... Jose? Yes, I see. Judging by those bullet holes, one in the chest and one in the head. It was Larker. Yeah. Looks like a murder case now. But what happened, Jackson? I met... met Jose on the road. His car had broken down early this morning. That was the one we passed a couple of miles back, John. Yeah. I should have recognized. Go on, Jackson. Well, he'd found... found the treasure. He was on his way back to get me and some shovels and... He found the treasure here in this hollow? No. I don't know where he found it. But that's when we saw Larker prowling around, keeping an eye on us. So to throw Larker off the track, you and Jose started digging around here in this hollow. Yeah. Huh? But then Larker came up to us with a gun. He shot Jose, and I... I guess this one on my head knocked me out. I don't remember anything till you came. All right, Jackson. Now, one thing, Jackson, before we got out here... Do you know where Jose found the treasure? Oh, well, that's something he's going to tell to me. What? Larker. Oh, no. Watch it, boys. Just drop those guns in the sand. Johnny? You better do it, Doug. Well, okay. So I fooled you, huh? 
taking that buggy away from here and then coming back on foot. So you fooled us. Well, too bad, boys. For both of you. So now I gotta kill you. The both of you. Mark, you listen to me. You listen. Price is gonna stay alive long enough to tell me where his pal Jose found the treasure. I know it ain't here because I dug down and looked for it. Mark, if you think for You'll one tell minute, me all right. After you've laid out here in the sun for a couple of days. Did I say that I know where it is? What are you trying to bluff? Now just shut up. But you two, the both of you are gonna die. You ready? Now wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. Oh no. You want it first, huh? Okay, you're going to get it right now. Obi! What? Stay away, Obi! Who are you? What are you doing? Uh, uh, try this! Oh, and this! Uh. Grab the gun, Doug. Oh, you bet I will. Oh, Obi. Thanks a lot. Uh, it's a pleasure, Johnny. Whatever brought you sneaking up on us in the rain this way? Well, doggone, I told you guys you should have let me come out here with you. <laughs> I had a terrible time tailing along in my other car without you seeing oh, me. Oh, Obi, Obi, you did all right. Yeah, but what do I get for all my trouble? Soaked to the skin and a handful of sore knuckles. <laughs> oh, that locker's tough, Johnny. Well, he's not nearly as tough as the sentence he's going to serve. the secret of its location there on Padre Island, died with Jose Panetta. Unless, of course, somebody happens to find out where he hid away the chart. But you can bet your bottom dollar there'll be plenty of people looking for it. Maybe even Jack Price and Obie O'Brien. As for Doug, he says he's had enough of it. Expense account total, including a suit of clothes for Obie and a couple of new tires for his Jeep, 485 bucks even. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Here's our star to tell you about next week's story. Next week, one of the dirtiest rackets I've ever had to deal with. To say nothing of the man behind it. Join us, won't you? Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar is written by Jack Johnstone. Produced and directed by Bruno Zerato, Jr., Music supervision by Ethel Huber. Johnny Dollar is played by Mandel Kramer. Also featured in our cast were Louis Van Ruten as Dog, Larry Haynes as Tony, Maurice Tarplin as Price, and Lawson Zerby as Opie. Be sure to join us next week, same time, same station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Stuart Metz speaking. A particularly sad and grim episode, The Perilous Padre Matter, from yours truly, Johnny Dollar, in the summer of 1961. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. I wish every old-time radio serial did as good a job of recapping the action as Lum and Abner. It makes it easy for you to follow and easier for us to dip in and play just a few installments from time to time. Even if you've missed the first episodes of their grab bag sale at the Jotham Down store, you'll catch up quickly. The announcer puts us in the picture as we listen to the next two chapters from April 16th and 17th, 1953, of the ABC series Lum and Abner. 
Uh, Granny's Abner, I believe that's our ring. I don't get long, I believe you're right. I'll see. Hello, jot them down, store. This is Lum and Abner. And now let's see what's going on down in Pine Ridge. Hi there, this is Dick Huddleston again. Well, the great grab bag sale at the Jotham Down store, after a wonderful start, is now heading towards disaster. Grandpap started guessing what was in the unlabeled canned goods and thus getting them free according to the rules of the sale. When he started toting the stuff away in wheelbarrows, why, Lum had to threaten him with an injunction to keep him from bankrupting the store. Well, Grandpap ain't been back, but they're still having trouble with the sale. Let's go to the store and I'll show you what I mean. Well, come in again, Miss Blevins. Glad you had such good luck. What do you mean, glad she had such good luck? Long this keeps up, me and you are going to be out of business by sundown. I know it. What do you reckon's got into folks around here? They all can't be that lucky. Doggies, no. Out of the last dozen customers we've had in here, I bound you every one of them's guessed right on four out of five cans. Yeah, up till today, hardly anybody ever got one right. No. Except Grandpap, of course. Barmit. Looks like now it never done us much good to run him out of here. No. Did you get that injunctions out against him? No, I never actually aimed on doing that. Just said that to scare him. Had to keep him out of here some way. Yeah, well, it worked. He ain't been back here since. <laughs> he sure was mad when he left out of here yesterday, though, weren't he? <laughs> yeah, we probably oughtn't to laid it on to him so strong. But ah. With him, that's about the only way you can get any results. But now, with the way everybody's guessing, we're worse off than we was when we just had him to put up with. Douglas, I just don't understand how they're doing it. Looks like me and you are the only two fellers in this whole place that can't figure out what's in them cans. Yeah. And we're the owners. I was noticing there's some numbers and letters stamped on the bottom of some of them cans, stamped right in the middle. Just wondering if they could tell anything but that. Uh, what does it say on them? Oh, just don't say nothing, just different numbers and letters. I, I couldn't make nothing out of them. Well, neither Grandpap or any of them that's been in there today long don't look at the bottoms of the can. No, that's right, ain't it? No, they just stand there and point a can out and say, tomatoes. When they get it open, that's what it is, tomatoes. Yeah, that blame I can't figure it out. They don't even pick up the cans and shake them like they used to. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. No, no, just... Wait a minute, wait a minute, there comes another customer. Just watch how they do it now, Long. Yeah, there's bound to be some trick about this. Oh, that's Mousy Gray there. Well... Howdy, Mousy. Yeah, come on in, Mousy. Haven't saw you in months. Uh-huh. Where you been keeping yourself? Oh, just at home doing the housework. Yeah, what can we do for you today? Well, I just wanted some canned goods. That's what I figured. <laughs> Gussie sent me over. <laughs> well, natural. Yes, sir. Well, all right, Mousy, go ahead. Take your pick. Yeah, what are you going to choose? I'm going to watch this one. Uh, Mousy, do you want to look at the bottom of the cans for any reason? Oh, no, sir. I'll, uh... Take that one right there on the lower shelf. This in here, huh? Yes, sir. Canned corn, cream style. All right. Here you are, sir. Abner, open it up. Yeah, give it here. I see you brought two fruit jars with you, Mousy. You must be wanting something else. Yes, sir. I'll take that uh, can on the end of the middle shelf there. It's uh, apricots. All right. Here's another one for you to open, Abner. What's in that first one? Canned corn, natural. Cream style? Of course. Hmm. Well, hurry up with that other one, Abner. Here, Mousy, you'll have to pour the stuff into the fruit jar yourself. Yes, sir. 
say, Mousy, just... It's ha- apricots, Mom. It is, huh? Yeah, hand me that other jar. I'll pour it for you. Mousy, would you mind telling me just how did you know how to guess what was in these cans? Oh, well, it just luck, I guess, Mom. <laughs> luck, huh? Yes, sir. Guess this is just my lucky day. Hmm. It must be because... Gussie got up early this morning so I could make up the bed before going downstairs to fix breakfast for her. Sometimes she's so thoughtful. Well, I better be getting home. Don't want to change my luck. So long. Well, wait a minute. You ain't paid us for... Er, no, that's right. You get the stuff free as long as you guess right. Now, come back again, Mousy. But not too soon. Dog is he didn't miss A1. Generally, they miss one or two leastways. Yeah. I wonder if it... Could be just luck. With everybody doing it? Yeah. Oh, that couldn't be luck. Well, it is hard to believe, but in anything that has a chance to it, you always got to reckon with the law of averages. And at first, uh, everybody what, what was... What law is that? Law of averages. See, at first, everybody was missing, so now it's changed to where they're all guessing right. Or most of the time they are. Well, I've never heard of that law before. When did they pass that? Oh, they never passed it, Abner. Hold it down, huh? We better tell the folks around here. Well, no, no. The idea is... Wait a minute, there comes another customer. Or, no, it's just Cedric. I doggies, if that Cedric comes in here and guesses right, then I'll agree with you, it is just luck. Because he couldn't figure out nothing for himself. Howdy, Cedric. You coming in to buy some canned goods? Yes, Mom, I sure am. Boy. <laughs> All right. What do you want? What are you going to pick? Oh, I'm going to take, uh... Well, I'll be doggone. What's the matter? Oh, I'll be back. I'll be back later. So long. Well, here, wait a minute, Cedric. I reckon what got into him. No telling. No. Maybe he just heard that law was voted down. What, what'd you call it? The law of averages, but that ain't no law like you vote on, Abner. It's just something that is. Huh? I mean, well, it's like the law of gravity. Gravities? Yeah. Well, I never heard of that law, neither. Was that and voted down, too? No, no. Uh, what's that in about, Lom? Gravel? Hauling gravel on the main road or something? No, gravity ain't got nothing to do with gravel. It's the law that says if you throw something up in the air, it comes down to the ground. Well, there's the silliest law I ever heard of. Who in the world got that up? Everything just naturally comes down if you throw it up in the air. That's what I mean. That's just the way things actually are. A natural law. They don't need to pass no law for it, though. That's what we're paying taxes for. I'm going... And in... can't you get it through your head that I don't mean that kind of a law? Now, just hash up and I'll explain it to you. Well, go ahead. Er, wait a minute, wait a minute. There comes Cedric back again. I reckon where he went to, anyway. No telling. What happened to you, Cedric? Oh, nothing. Just forgot something's all. Oh, uh, see, I'll take that can right there. Ripe olives. Jumbo mammoth size, I believe, I think. Listen here, huh? All right, we'll just open it up and see. Oh, you need to bother to open it up. That's what's in it all. Oh, no, you don't get away with that now. Just a minute, Cedric. What makes you so sure you know what's in that can? Oh, just know is all. I'm a good guesser. Yeah, well, we'll see about that in just a second here. I know it is olive, Lom. Here, take it, Cedric. Did you bring a fruit jar with you? No, Mom, I'll just eat them this way. I just wish peanut butter come in cans, though. <laughs> well, so long. I'll be in again when I need something else. I'd still like to know why he come in here once and then went right out again. Wonder if that had anything to do with him guessing right. I don't see how it could. Well, there's got to be some way he did it, Long. I know it ain't that law you was telling me about, the one on that gravel tease. 
Cedric don't know what laws they pass and what ones they ain't. Well, just sit down and let me explain that to you. Good. Gravity just means that everything, when it falls, falls towards the earth. It ain't got no regular law like they got in statute books. Well, I'm glad you finally admitted to it. It was discovered by a feller named Isaac Newton, I think. You've heard of Isaac Newton, ain't you? Oh, sure, sure. He's that uh, fisherman they always tell about. No, that was Walton. Walton Newton? No, Isaac Walton. Oh, well, who's this Newton feller you was talking about? Well, he's the feller that discovered gravities. The idea that things fall downwards. You mean before that, things fell up? Oh, because he started a good thing there. Something started falling upwards where you never would find it. No, they had it before then, but he was the one that figured it out. Well, law me, law it don't seem to me it'd take much brains to figure that out. No, but you see, he was the one that gave it that name of gravity, I think. Figured out a big, long rigmarole about it. See, one day he was sitting under a tree and an apple fell down and hit him on the head, and that's when he decided right then and there that was the law of gravity. Oh, <laughs> can't put no dependence on what he'd tell you. Well, why can't you? Lom, a feller that's just been whopped on the head, you can't take his word for nothing. You ought to be ashamed of yourself, Abner. Isaac Newton was a famous scientific, and he... Well, for goodness sakes, I wonder what's the matter with Miss Pomeroy. Somebody hit her on the head with an apple? No, she started to come in the store then, and all of a sudden she stopped and headed around to the side. Huh. That's the same direction Cedric went in. Look out the side window there, Abner, and see if you can see anything. All right, all right. Don't see what there is out there to see, but I'll look. Well, I don't know, but it just seems peculiar to me that she would start in here the way she did and then... Well, I'll be dead blame, Lum. There's Grandpap out there. Grandpap? Yeah, he's sitting on a camp stool and he's talking to Miss Pomeroy. See him there? Yeah. Well, what's that peculiar-looking thing standing beside him there? That's Mrs. Pomeroy. No, I mean... Uh... My grannies, that's a telescope. That's what that is. A telescope? Yeah, and he's got a sign up there, too. It says, uh, grannies, I can't read it. Can you make it out? Your eyes is better than mine. Uh, it says, uh, stop here for advice on how to get your canned goods free. Ten cents a tip. Well, I'll be dad blame. He said he'd get even with us. I grannies, he's doing it. I believe that's our ring. I don't get Lum. I believe you're right. I'll see. Hello, John M. Downstore. This is Lum and Abner. And now let's see what's going on down in Pine Ridge. Howdy, folks. This is Dick Huddleston. Well, sir, Grandpappy Spears put the kibosh on Lum and Abner's grab bag sale when he discovered some mysterious system for guessing the contents of the unlabeled canned goods in the Jotham Down store. They wouldn't let Grandpap in the store anymore, so he set up shop outside the store and charged folks for telling them what to guess and thus get their canned goods free. So the sale goes disastrously on, and Lum and Abner can't figure out what to do about it. Dad blamed that grandpap anyway. Look at him sitting out there grinning and taking in money for them tips he's giving everybody. Yeah. How's he do it, Lom? 
How does that varmint know how to tell them what's in them cans? I don't know. I do not know. It's got me half crazy. Logus, how does he do it? I tell you, I laid awake all night long trying to figure that out. He just drive me out of my mind. Me too. This is the blacklinest one thing I've ever been up again. How does he do it? I just wish I knowed. Well, Lom, it's got something to do with that bad blame telescope he's got out there. Uh, no, but what? Just look at him sitting out there, acting some importance. You'd think he was a Kang or something. Yeah. That blame sign he's got sitting out there. Stop here for advice on how to get your canned goods free. Ten cents a tip. <laughs> Bounty, he's taken in over ten dollars so far. Amner, don't get so close to the window. I don't want him to see us looking at him. I don't want him to think we're worried at all. Lom, he knows we're worried. Anytime a body's going to bankrupt, why, well, they're bound to be worried. And if they ain't, they must have rocks in their head. Yeah, I know, but I don't want to give Grandpap the satisfaction of knowing he's bankrupting us. Well, Lom, ain't there some way of stopping him? Can't we run him out of there? No, not legal. Well, you got him out of the store by threatening to get out an injunction against him. Can't you get up another injunction to run him off our property? That's the trouble. He ain't on our property. He's sitting out there half a foot off of it. It's public where he's at. Yes, huh? Yeah, and ain't no law I know of that says a man can't be on public property. Well, ain't there some law about being a public nuisance? Well, he ain't no public nuisance, though. He's doing the public a big favor. Yeah. Getting them canned goods for practical nothing. Yeah, that's right. Well, let's just call off the sale in, Lum. That's the thing to do. Just call it off. Well, then we wouldn't have no business at all. Folks ain't going to pay good money for a lot of cans when they don't know what's in them. No, no, that's right. But we sure ain't making no money on the business we're doing now. Everybody's getting all their canned goods free. Well, once in a while somebody misses and then we take in a quarter... Then, too, we're making a little on selling fruit jars so they can carry the stuff home after we open the cans to see if they guessed right. Yeah, but even that's falling off. Like now, everybody now is bringing their own fruit jars with them. Yeah, I know it. Dad, blame that grandpa. Believe I'll just go out there and run him off barehanded. I'll fist fight him. No, now, don't do that. I'll scuffle with the varmint. All that'll just get us in more trouble, Abner. He could lawsuit us for assaulting them batteries or something. Well, what are we going to do then, Lum? I ain't going to just sit here and let him ruin her. Well, I ain't neither. What we've got to do is figure out how Grandpap tells what's in them cans. Then we can do it ourselves and go back to selling merchandise like we used to. Yeah, but how are we ever going to figure out a... Or wait just a minute. Dogan, I believe I got a idea. No, oh no, that's no good, I reckon. What was it? No, 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 I don't want that critter hanging around in here. Well, what was your idea? No use telling you, because I'm against it. Blame it, Abner. Tell me what it was. Well, I just thought as long as Grandpap knows what's in all them cans, why we could hire him for a clerk here in the store. Hire Grandpap? My Granny's, wait a minute, Abner. You have got a good idea there. Well, might be a good one, but I'm against it. Now, wait a minute. No, Abner. no, no, no. I hate to go again my own ideas that way, but I just don't want to have no truck with that old Billy Goat. All right, I'll tell you what then. When he's working in here, you can be out making the delivers. And if there ain't no delivers, you can stay home. And I'll call you when we need you. Well, let me think that over now. Just a We've minute. We've got to do it, Abner. It's the only way we're ever going to realize anything out of these canned goods. Yeah, well, I reckon you're right. Wish I hadn't studied up the idea. Come, come on, let's talk to him right now. Open the window there. Sometimes it's a handicap being smart as I am. Hurry up and get the window up, Abner. I'm getting it. I'm getting it. Yeah, holler at Grandpa. Hey, Grandpap! Grandpap! 
Mr. Avery Milford Spears. Yeah, what do you want, Mr. Abner Peabody? Me and Lom's got an idea we want to talk to you about. Er, Lom has. I ain't for it, I'll tell you that right now. Well, I don't even know what it is. And I ain't for it neither. See there, Lom? The deal's off. Well, now, wait a minute. Grandpap don't know what it is yet. Now, here's the idea, Grandpa. He's again it, Lom. We're getting pretty swamped with work in here with this grab bag sale and all. We could use an extra hand, special somebody that knows the stock like you seem to. What do you say, Grandpa? Would you like to work for us? I'll be out making a deal ever, so I won't be around here much. I can't come in your pigeon-toed store. You throwed me out of there. Got that inner junctions again me. Yeah, well, just forget about that, Grandpa. How about it, huh? Well, I don't know. Okay, deal's off. No, now, wait a minute. It'll be a nice, easy job, Grandpap. You can just sit in the rocker in here, in a nice comfort rocker, instead of that uncomfort when you got out there, and all you'll have to do is point out which canned goods is which when customers want hominy or baked beans or whatever it is they want. Dog, I wish I could get a job like that. Well, I'll tell you, I got a pretty good business going right here. Uh, I'm making a dime on every can you fellas sell in there. Every can we give away, you mean? Well, that's your business. That grab bag sale was your idea, not mine. Yeah, but you're the one that's ruining it for us. He wasn't sitting out there giving tips to everybody. We'd be making some money instead of going broke. Well, I don't care. That blame his honorary hide anyway. Better watch it, Abner. That's hard on your blood pressures. Flying off in the handlebars that way. Oh, keep quiet. Well, what about it, Grandpap? Do you want the job? I hope he don't. Well, it's like I say, Lum. I'm making ten cents a can on everything you sell right now. So if you boost that up to fifteen cents a can, I'll take it. Fifteen cents a can? Fifteen? Grannies, we don't make that much ourselves. We couldn't pay that. We'd be losing money. Doggies, yes. Well, that's my proposition. Take it or leave it. Grandpap, you're a robber. A low-down, underhanded... Just a minute here. I'm doing you a favor. I'm giving you a chance to take in some money on the canned goods. The way it is now, you ain't taking in nothing. Doggies, I ought to come out there and pop Shut the window. Huh? Close the window and stop talking. Oh. Yeah. If you want to take my proposition, let me know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Even robber, low down, underhanded. Well, of course, barn. he has got a point there, and he knows he's got us right where he wants us. Getting to where I hate and despise his honorary hide. I hate to do business on that kind of a base, though. Just ain't right. I wouldn't do it if it was right. Tell you that right now. I don't want to have no trouble. Got to find out how he tells what's in them cans and beat him at his own game. Well, you reckon he's a mind reader? Or a ten-can reader, I mean? No, there's got to be a logic explanation of this thing somewhere or other. Let's take it step by step now. Well, I'll tell you my opinions if you want them. It's got something to do with that telescope he's got out there with him. I don't know what it is exactly, but something. Maybe that's a magical telescope, Plum. No, there ain't no such a thing, I don't think. Well, uh, maybe it's got one of them uh, extra ray machines inside of it there. You know, one of them things that see-through thing? No, there ain't no such a thing, I don't think. Well, maybe it's got an extra ray machine inside of it there. No, there ain't room in it for that. And here's another thing we got to remember. At first, he didn't use no telescope. When he was in the store guessing, he didn't look through no telescope or nothing else. Yeah, that's right, eh? Yeah. I'd still have to get a look through that thing, though. Find out just what he's looking at. So would I. But I don't know how we're going to do it. You know, good and well, if that's got anything to do with it, he ain't going to let us look through it. No. Give his whole secret away. 
if that's it. Well, Long, we just got to get him away from that telescope some way. But how, I don't know. Wait a minute. I got it, Heidi. Huh? You know how serious he takes that telegram deliver job of his. Oh, he thinks that's the grandest one job in the world. All right. We'll send somebody in town a telegram. He'll have to go over to Dick Huddleston's to get it and deliver it. And while he's doing that, we'll look through the telescope. <laughs> <laughs> I know, because that's a good idea. Uh, who, who are we going to send the telegram to? Well, it don't matter. Just anybody. Your woman, Elizabeth, you want to. Oh, no, not her, Lum. She'd think dead away if she ever got a telegram. Well, I'll think of somebody. I'll call over to Dick Huddleston's store right now. Well, this will cost us money now, Lum. Got to. You know, they charge for sending them telegrams. I don't care. It's worth it. Let's see. Uh, who can we send a telegram to? Hello, Dick. This is Lum. Say, Dick, I want to send a telegram. Oh, it's to, uh... Hey, uh, how about Cedric? He never gets no telegram. Oh, to Cedric Weehunt. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, let's see. Uh, well, just don't say nothing in it. Just leave it blank. I know, but... Well, this is a secret code, I think. Dog it. I don't or, know that. Or just sign it, uh, Grover Cleveland. <laughs> well, it's sort of a joke, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a joke on Grandpap, I know that. <laughs> All right, fine, Dick. I'll send Grandpap over to deliver it. Yeah. So long. Well, it's worked so far. Now I'll tell Grandpap to get over there. Yeah, all right, all right. <laughs> hey, Grandpap. Grandpap, you better get over to Dick Huddleston's. How's that? We were just talking to Dick on the phone, and there's a telegram over there for you to deliver. Oh, much obliged. Don't get it work, Lump. Look at him skedaddle. Well, come on, <laughs> let's get out there. Wait a minute, wait a minute, Dad, blame it. What's the matter? Well, he come back and got his telescope there. Look at him, that low-down, ornery varmint. <laughs> I still can't figure it out, but we'll keep at it and try to learn Grandpap's secret as we continue that spring 1953 Lum and Abner story next week here on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. If you grew up in an American Jewish household in the 1940s or 50s, as I did, then Gertrude Berg was a kind of hero to families and a hero to feminists as well. She was one of the first, maybe the first, woman to conceive, write, produce, and star in her own radio series. The Rise of the Goldbergs, later simply The Goldbergs, started on NBC in 1929. The radio version ran for some two decades, longer than any other series except Amos and Andy, and it had many iterations. It led to a Broadway play, a motion picture, a comic strip, and perhaps most famously, a television series, all run by the indefatigable engine that was the Emmy Award-winning Gertrude Berg. She went on to win a Tony Award for the Broadway play A Majority of One. And the Molly Goldberg Jewish cookbook that she wrote with Myra Waldo in 1955 is still a staple in our kitchen. It's one of the best compendiums of Jewish-American recipes ever. We'd like nothing better than to play a full episode of the Goldbergs, and we hope to one of these days. 
but not a lot of episodes survive in good shape. And for a lot of its life, it was a daily serial, so it's hard to just drop in for one episode. For tonight, though, Gertrude Berg's birthday, co-producer Jill Arold Bailey has prepared a little excerpt of the show from the late fall of 1944, long after the show had moved to CBS. The situation is that Molly Goldberg's been taken to a rest home. We'll hear the mix of humor and pathos that was characteristic of the Goldbergs and the unmistakable voice of Gertrude Berg. Now D-U-Z does brings you the Goldbergs. You? Is anybody? There's Molly, folks. That means your friends the Goldbergs are here. Brought to you by Does. Now Does invites you to visit the Goldbergs. Just as man is given an anesthetic when his physical pain is too great, so nature has created an antidote to mental pain. It takes the form of memory loss. When Molly saw Jake's clothing brought to her by the police for identification, the resulting shock was too great to bear. So her mind reverted for a while to the past, to more pleasant memories. Even though she began to recover, the doctor urged Mike and David to take Molly to a rest home to get her the right care and to help her get over the shock. Right now, Molly and her friends are in the receiving room of the Hillcrest Rest Home. Listen. Rosalie, Rosalie, why am I here? No, no, Mama, darling, it's only because you need a rest. Well, what will rest do for me? Can I rest? Will I rest? I know where Papa dear is. We'll know that too, Mama, darling. But but first you have to take care of yourself. You have to, Molly. If anybody can get a line of where Mr. Goldberg is, Joe can. So all we want you to do is to take a rest. <laughs> and this is a nice place, Molly. It is. It's a pleasure to be sick in such a hospital. But I'm not sick. Of course you're not sick, Molly. You just run down. I'm not, Rosalie. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not run down. I'm not run down. I'm not run up. I'm not. Let me go back better, please. Hey, Mrs. Goldberg, you're smart about everything else. Be smart about what's going to do you some good. Mike is right. Perfectly right. Be smart about what's going to do you some good. I was upstairs to look the place over, Mrs. Goldberg. It's a swell joint. I mean, I mean, it's a beautiful hospital. Beautiful, Molly. You'll sit in the sun under the roof. They, they got a salary room. Solarium, Uncle David. Solarium? Oh, so let me solarium. Maybe I should call last and speak to Birdie. See? See? That's what you mustn't do. I'll call and Rosalie call. Whatever has to be done, we'll do. Maybe I should call and see how Seymour is. See? See? You see? That's what the doctor don't want you to do now. I want to know if there's mail from family. Now, see? See, that's what the doctor don't want you to do. And if I don't know, will it make me feel better? Mrs. Goldberg, don't you think we can handle all that for you? All you need is a couple of days of complete rest. That's what the doctor said. Just look at it as a vacation. Gee, I bet you never had a vacation. This was supposed to be my vacation when I took a bus to go to Mexico visiting. That was going to be a vacation. I'm sorry I mentioned it. All right, let's stop talking about it, huh? Mama, darling. What? What? So, so what are we waiting here for? Oh, uh, we got to get you registered. Yes, we got to get you registered. Yeah, you've got to go into that office, the uh, admitting office. you, you got to go to the admitting office. Yeah, oh. you've got to give them a little data. Data you got to give? Yes. So, so go in, Mike, and, and ask him how long we have to wait. I'll go. 
Uh, would you like a piece of chewing gum, Mrs. Goldbike? No, thank you, Michael. I'll be right out. Yes. Yes. Come on. The patient is getting impatient. I'm sorry, sir. Uh, I'd like to talk to you, madam. If... Yes. Won't you come in, please? Well, uh, it's, uh, it's just about paying the bill. I want to pay for a week in advance. Is the patient booked for a week? Well, uh, Dr. Sandridge didn't say, but I guess she'll be here at least a week, and if there's any extras, you can give me the bill later. You understand that there'll be no refund if the patient leaves before... That's okay. Are you going to pay by check? <laughs> you don't object to cash, do you? <laughs> I, uh, I want to treat it like the Duchess. Your wife will get all the care she needs. But she ain't my wife. and uh, uh, Don't get me wrong, sister. She's just a good friend. There's, there's some of that left in the world yet. The friendship, I mean. Yes? Yes, bring her in. Uh, all right, Rosie. All right, Mother. Uh, uh, don't mention the bill, will you? Not if you don't want me to. No, I don't. I'm I'm just a natural-born lady bountiful. What kind of perfume do you use? Thanks, but none of that. Well, uh, put it away as a Christmas gift in advance. I'll take care of your friend if that's what's worrying you. Uh, Miss Erickson speaking. This is police headquarters. I want some information, please. Uh, just a minute. I'll connect you with the third floor. Hello? Hello, put this call through to the third floor. Uh, come in. Come, Lord. Come on. Yes. Won't you sit down, please? Uh, we'll wait Thank outside you. for you. Yes, Molly. We'll wait outside. Is it all right if I stay, please? It's my daughter, nice. Uh, that's all right. Uh, uh, come, Grandpa. Yes, I'm coming. Oh, no. Now, there are just a few questions I want, want you to answer. Um, uh, yes, Mother. Don't be nervous, Mommy, darling. Your name, please. My name, my, my, my name is Molly Goldberg. Mrs. Goldberg? Yes. Your address, please. My address, um, my address, my real address, um, Lesson, Lessonbury, that's all, Lessonbury, yes, Connecticut. Spell it, please. Um, Lesson. L-A-S-T-E-N-B-U-R-Y-B-U-R-Y, Connecticut, yes. Where were you born, Mrs. Goldberg? Where I was born, I was born on the other side. When were you born? I was born just before the blizzard. What year? What year? What year, Rosalie? Just excuse me, it was um, it was before I came to America, and I'm in America already. Um, oh, how old are you, Mama, darling? Old enough to take care of myself, Mama. Excuse me, and not bother anybody. Oh, excuse me. Yes. Mr. Erickson speaking. This is the police headquarters, and we want some information. Oh, just a minute. You have the wrong floor. I uh, put this call through to the third floor, please. I'm sorry. Sorry. Um, September 22nd, that's my next birthday. And, uh, what year I forgot? I, I think it was 18. Um, I'm on some place in my middle ages. My, you thought it. Figure out, Rosalie, figure out. I, I, I was married four months after my 18th birthday. I'll take a pencil. My, my, my last wedding anniversary was, uh, it was, um, 
It was nearly my silver anniversary. That makes, uh, that's nearly 25 years. All right, Mama, darling. Um, so, so put me down for, uh, for 40-something. I'm 46. Not 46, Rosalind, not yet. 45. 44. 44. Uh, how many children? Two. Two wonderful children. Wonderful children. Uh, my son is in the army. Two children. Yes. Two children? Yes. Uh, excuse me. Yes. Miss Erickson speaking. This is the police headquarters. We want some information. I'm sorry, but hold on. I'll connect you with one who can help you. Put this call through the third floor, please. Sometimes I wish I didn't have to have a telephone in my office. Uh, now, where were we? It was up to my children. Oh, uh, two children. Yes, a family Goldberg and Rosie Goldberg. Any illnesses? Illnesses. Illnesses. Sickness. Uh... Well, what, what illnesses? Uh, not much. Uh, the children, the children had measles and hoofing cough and, and mumps, but myself, uh, once I nearly had stones here, here does the go. But it wasn't. Uh, my doctor, who, who was, who was my doctor? That was Dr. Rickenbeck, yes. Dr. Rickenbeck. Wonderful doctor. Wonderful doctor. He took out my friend's, uh, Appendicitis, too. Wonderful doctor. Only, only had five stitches. Wonderful doctor. And then uh, the doctor took my pictures and he found me null and void. I'm a perfect woman, nice. Only uh, lumbago every season, the fall season when the leaves fall. And in the spring, if the spring is delayed and the winter lingers, then I sometimes have migraine headaches. That's all nice. That's all. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, Mr. Erickson speaking. I want some information. Please. I'm sorry. So am I. Uh, just a minute, I... Now don't bother about giving me the third floor. Just get me the information I want, please. Sure to listen to the next episode of The Goldbergs, written for you by Gertrude Berg and brought to you by D.U.Z. Does. The redoubtable Gertrude Berg, born on this date, October 3rd, in 1899, in her triumphant role as Molly in the Goldbergs, from December 15th in the wartime year of 1944. You heard it here on the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arald Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington, celebrating 60 years as your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. For some reason, we don't hear it used so much nowadays, but law enforcement officials were often called peace officers. In tonight's Gunsmoke episode, you may discover why. It's a story called The Gypsum Hill Feud, and it comes from April 16, 1955, and the CBS series Gunsmoke. <laughs> Gunsmoke. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of gun smoke.
Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad. The transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America. And the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man. Matt Dillon, United States Marshal. The first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful. And a little lonely. happened on the way back to Dodge from a trip to a straggling little settlement to the southeast called Medicine Lodge. That country was a lot different from the flat prairie land around Dodge City. Down there, it was dotted with buttes and hills of gypsum and red shale, and it was cut by narrow, winding canyons. It was kind of pretty, too, and we were in no hurry, so... Every few hours, we stopped and got down into the shade of some little hill and had ourselves a smoke or two. I don't understand it, Mr. Dillon. Understand what, Chester? Well, Ship, if the Santa Fe Railroad had to start a town like Dodge at all, why didn't they do it down here? This country ain't at all boresome. <laughs> I agree with you, Chester. Well, there's one thing, though. This is better outlaw country. A man can keep out of sight mighty easy among these hills. Oh, that reminds me. What? So can an animal. I saw some antelope tracks headed toward the other side of this hill. I just might sneak up there and have a look. We could sure do with some fresh meat. Yeah. Uh, what rifle did you bring, Mr. Dillon? Uh, Springfield 45. Mm. Well, that'll take care of anything within a thousand yards. Uh, providing I hit it. If you can't, just give me a yell. I'll come help you. <laughs> Good hunting. Somebody was shooting at me, Chester. What? He hit you? No. Well, can you see him? If I could, I'd have had a bullet in him. You, you didn't see him at all? And I saw the smoke from his rifle. Well, then maybe you hit him. And if I didn't, it came awful close. Can I take a look now? No, you better stay where you are. What was he shooting at you for, Mr. Dillon? Well, I'll ask him when we get close enough, Justin. I know where he was. We'll skirt that hill to our left there and come up on his flank. I don't like getting bushwhacked.
Well, that's where he was, Chester, behind that clump of beard grass there. Well, he sure ain't there now. Yeah, I guess I didn't hit him after all. I don't see no sign of blood. No, but we can track him anyway. You ride to one side, and I'll follow his trail. All right, sir. You yell out if you see anything at all, Justin. Yes, sir, I sure will. Now, well, here's where he had his horse. I don't know. No, by heaven, those are mule tracks. Hey, look. Beyond them trees there, Mr. Dillon, there's a little stream over there. Yeah. It's big enough to hide his tracks. All he has to do is ride down the middle of it. Well, you can follow along one bank and I'll take the other. He's got to come out of the water someplace. How are we going to tell if he's headed upstream or down? All right. I never thought of that. Now, here's where he went under the water, Chester. I'll go over and see if he rode straight across. Uh, wait a minute, Mr. Dillon. What? Come on down here. Yeah, what is it? Well, look at them tracks, Mr. Dillon. He come out of the water right here. Now, what was he doing riding downstream a hundred yards? All that did was slow him up. Oh, he's crazy. Anybody riding a mule must be crazy. Well, he can't be too far ahead of us, Chester. Let's get him. a mile or so, we had no trouble tracking him. But then he started up along the side of a low hill that was mostly shale. And since his mule was unshod, his trail became almost impossible to follow. We lost it over and over again. And I had to get down and move along a foot or two at a time in order to pick it up. But finally, some tracks led down into the soft dirt. And a couple of miles further on, we spotted a little cabin like he ain't nothing but a nester, Mr. Dillon. Well, he handles a rifle better than any nester I ever saw. Yes. Uh, we better go on foot from here, Chester. Mm-hmm. Well, ain't no sign of nobody. He's probably inside waiting for us. Well, he hasn't shot at us yet. Let's chance it, huh? Walk right up there. Okay. There's a corral out back beyond that wagon, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. There's his mule. Just stuck his head up. Well, then there must be somebody home. I hope they don't come out shooting.
How do you do, ma'am? What do you want? We're looking for your husband. Is he home? We don't know who people are out here, mister. Now, my name's Dillon, and uh, this Chester Proudfoot. How do, ma'am? Never heard of you. Uh, we're strangers here. This ain't a good place to be, mister. You better keep riding. We, uh... We gotta talk to your husband first, ma'am. Who ma you join with, Liza? Well, there's a couple of strangers standing here, Mr. Peavy. We got nothing for strangers. They want to talk to you. Get him away from the door. I'll come outside and talk to him. Mr. Peavy said to get away from the door. All right, ma'am. He's coming out now. You stay here, Liza, and keep Paul out of the way, too. Yeah, I want to see what's going on. Go back to your room, Pa. <laughs> he carries that rifle like a Blue Ridge Mountain man, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. My wife says you want to talk to me. What about? Your name's Peavy? Albin Peavy. I'm Matt Dillon, Peavy. They don't mean nothing to me. I'm a lawman, U.S. Marshal. That don't mean nothing to me, neither. We tracked you here, Peavy, you and your mule. Tracked me? What for? Because I don't like getting shot at. I don't know what you're talking about, Marshal, but I ain't proud to have you standing here in front of my cabin and putting blame on me. I said we tracked you here. What difference does that make? I didn't do no shooting, and you can't prove I did. If I was you, I'd clear out and leave people to their own business. You try to kill a man, and then you get mad when he complains about it, huh? Why should I try to kill you? It don't make sense to kill a man you don't even know. I never shot at a man without causing my life, and that's the truth. Anything else you want to tell me? No. Except to leave me alone. All right. Come on, Chester. Well, Mr. Dillon, you can't let him get Come away. on, I said. Yes, sir. We just gonna ride off and let him get by with this, Mr. Dillon? We're gonna ride off, Chester, but we'll be back in the morning. We'll be back every day for a week if we have to. Empty, Mr. Dillon. And his wagon's gone, too. Oh, maybe Ms. Peavy's inside. Let's tie our horses here, Chester. All right, she might even give us some coffee. Well, these Peavy's ain't exactly the most hospitable folks I ever come across. Well, maybe they'll improve when they get used to us. <laughs> More likely they'll shoot us first. Wait a minute, Chester. What? Over there, coming around that hill. It's Peavy's wagon. But who's that driving them mules? That's a woman. Probably Miss Peavy. Where do you suppose they've been? Out shooting strangers, probably. Well, they'd be better off if they spent their time fixing this place up some. It's going plumb to ruin. Yeah, Peavy's got other things on his mind, Chester. Yeah, he sure has. <laughs> he acts like a man riding shotgun, doesn't he? 
fancy letting his woman do all the work. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Get on, Liza. They'll stand. Morning, Peavy. Ma'am. I thought I told you to leave us alone. You did. Then what are you doing back? Well, I thought you might be a little more friendly than you were yesterday. I, uh, I guess I was wrong. I ain't got time to be friendly. No? Marshal, I'll tell you straight out so you won't get any wrong ideas. There's a man in that wagon. What? He's dead. Shot dead. And we're gonna bury him now. Well, who is he? His name don't matter. But I didn't shoot him. You can go look if you want. He's been dead most of the day now. Well, what are you doing with him? I found him laying out there, so as I got the wagon and brought him in, I'm going to bury You're him. You're going to a lot of trouble, Peavy. Why? I found a man laying dead on the ground. I ain't going to ride off and leave him there. Where did you find him? Out that way, a few miles. What difference it make? None, maybe. You want some help? We don't need no help, Marshal. All right, we'll leave you to your work. Let's get our horses adjusted. We rode off in the opposite direction the Peavies had come, made a circle and picked up their wagon tracks about a half a mile from the cabin. It was an easy trail to follow. And an hour later, we found the spot where they'd picked up the body. It proved what I'd suspected all along. So we turned around and rode back toward the Peavy cabin. We were about a mile from it when we saw an old man and a woman ahead of us, both armed and both riding mules. Well, they've seen us, Mr. Dillon. They're stopping. Good. They don't look none too friendly, neither, do they? And nobody does around here. Hello? He won't even wave. Hello? Who are you? I'm a U.S. Marshal from Dodge. My name's Dillon. Looking for somebody? Maybe. What's your name? Cade. Jack Cade. This here's my wife, Ellen. You need us you're looking for, ain't you? You live around here, Cade? A few miles from here. Alvin Peavy, a friend of yours? Not hardly. Shut up, Ellen. Now, if you're not friends, what are you doing here, Cade? Man can ride where he pleases. Sure. But when a man and his wife start out carrying rifles and are headed for Alvin Peavy's place, it might be different. You keep out of this, Marshal. Us Cades don't need no lawmen. Who is it, Cade? Your son? What's he know about Ben? I told you to shut up, Bill, and I'll do the talking. Ben, huh? Is that it, Cade? Did Peavy kill your son, Ben? All right, you're so smart, I'll tell you. A man like Peavy don't deserve to live. He killed Ben and he stole him. Run off with his body. 
Men can't get lower than that. How do you know he killed him? I found Ben last night, that's how. Last night? I couldn't handle him alone, so I went home after Ellen. Then it got dark, and we had to wait there till morning. And he was gone by then. I knew it was Alvin Peavy stole him, and he killed him, too. But he's going to die for it. We're going to face him straight on and get it over with, fast. Ellen's as good a shot as I am, Marshal. Look, Kate, if Peavy killed your son, I don't blame you for being mad. But he must have had some reason for killing him. It ain't none of your bother, Marshal. I keep telling you. All right, I'll have to make it, my bother. Don't move, Cade. You're covered. Miss Cade, you hold that rifle down or I'll have to shoot your husband. Pretty sneaky, ain't you? Get a rifle, Chester. Yes, sir. All right, give it to me, Kate. Take it. And I'll take yours, Kate. Go ahead. You got another rifle? Where? At home. And I'll get it, too. You're not going home, Kate. What do you mean? We're going to go see the Peavies first. Like you say, we're going to get this thing over with. Cabin's empty, Chester. Uh, where have they got to? You stay with the cage. I'm going to take a look around back. I hope Alvin Peavy shoots you, Marshal. And I hope he doesn't. Keep an eye on him, Chester. Yes, sir. You stand real easy now, Cade, and quiet, too. Mr. Peavy? What? You fetch my rifle, Liza. No, stay where you are. Now, don't you move either, Peavy. What'd you let him get the drop on us for? I didn't see him. I'm not going to shoot anybody, Peavy. Chester, bring him back here. What are you up to anyways? I want to explain something to you, Peavy, and to Jack Cade and his wife, too. Cade? Yeah, we met them coming over here to kill you. I've got to get my rifle. Mother. They're not armed. We took their rifles. He's right, Mr. Peavy. They ain't armed. I'll kill them with my bare hands. You move and I'll bend my gun barrel over your head, Peavy. Look at that, Marshal. He's burying him. Peavy's burying my boy. Is that who it is, Peavy? Is it Ben Cade? Oh, tell me. Well, what's the difference now? It's Ben Cade. Oh, why didn't you leave him? Why did you bring him here? There's another grave here, Marshal. You can't see it. I fixed it so nobody can see it. What? 
two months ago, Ben Cade shot my son. Before he died, I promised I'd someday bury Ben nearby, and that's what I'm doing. It's your boy's own fault he got shot. If he hadn't been hounding Ben, it wouldn't have happened. So that's what this feud's all about, huh? It ain't over yet, Marshal. Peavy's gonna die for killing Ben. Now, wait a minute, Kate. Peavy, I want to ask you something. Well? You were after young Cade for killing your son, is that right? That's right. And now he's dead, you're satisfied? That's all I wanted. It don't matter who killed him. And you, Cade? You're after Peavy because he shot your boy. I'll kill him for it if it takes ten years. Well, you're wasting your time. The feud's over, gentlemen. Huh? I killed Ben Cade. What are you talking about? He tried to shoot me from ambush. He thought I was Peavy stalking him. So I fired back. And I must have hit him. But he didn't die till he got across that stream where you found his body. We tracked him as far as the bank, and then I got smart and picked up a trail that come out down below. I thought it was Ben's. But of course it was Peavy's. Is that true? Peavy, you didn't shoot him? I never claimed I did. You can't blame the marshal, Kate. No. He had to defend himself. I, I ain't blaming him. I'm sorry it happened, Kate. But now maybe both of you men are ready to agree that there's been enough killing around here. What do you say, Peavy? He's been enough for me. I'm satisfied. What about you, Kate? What do you think? It ought to stop now. We lost our boys. I'm thinking maybe it's right that they should be buried here like that to kind of remind us. Kate? Yeah, Peavy? You leave Ben here, I guess you ought to come by once in a while. Well, I'd want to do that. See my son's grave. I'll take good care of him. Both of them. Marshal? Yeah. Maybe if my woman boils up some coffee, all you people sit down with us. Well, thank you, Peavy. I think everybody would like that. Gunsmoke, produced and directed by Norman MacDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Our story was specially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Ray Kemper. Featured in the cast were Vivi Janis, John Daner, and Vic Perrin. Parley Bear is Chester. Gypsum Hill Feud. 
a Gunsmoke adventure from the day after tax day in 1955. It's the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz, Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer, and Kenny Pirog is the audio engineer. Our Facebook page is The Big Broadcast, and here's a special note. In exactly three weeks, on October 24th, WAMU is celebrating its 60th anniversary. And of course, The Big Broadcast is a big part of that legacy. We're asking you to help. Whether you've just discovered our show, or you've been listening since the days of Ed Walker, or even since John Hickman, as I have, then we want to hear from you. If you love the big broadcast, please tell us why and when you started listening. Record a message on your smartphone or another device and email it to us at bigbroadcast at wamu.org. That's our email address. Or call WAMU after 5 o'clock any day, like right now, if you like, at 202-885-1200. And follow the prompts to leave us a message. We'll post the call-in instructions on our website, too, bigbroadcast.org. And there is a deadline. Please get your voice to us by Monday, October 11th, and thanks. On Dragnet tonight, one of those cases that, unhappily, might just as well have taken place today. It's an episode called The Big Filth, and it comes from February 2nd, 1954, the NBC Network and Dragnet. Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to hear is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Dragnet. You're a detective sergeant. You're assigned a juvenile detail. Four children in your city have apparently been abandoned by their mother. There's no trace of the woman's whereabouts. There's a possibility of foul play. Your job, investigate. Dragnet, the documented drama of an actual crime. For the next 30 minutes, in cooperation with the Los Angeles Police Department... You will travel step-by-step on the side of the law through an actual case transcribed from official police files. From beginning to end, from crime to punishment, Dragnet is the story of your police force in action. It was Friday, February 8th. It was raining in Los Angeles. We were working the night watch out of juvenile detail. My partner's Frank Smith. The boss is Captain Powers. My name's Friday. I was on my way back from Juvenile Hall, and it was 7.46 p.m. when I got to 1335 Georgia Street, the office. Joe? Yeah, Irene? You talked to Captain Powers? Yeah, the way it looks, Frank's going to be tied up in court for a couple of days. It's going kind of hard. Gang war, isn't it? Yeah, seems like everybody in town's climbed on this one, really making a big thing out of it. Uh-huh. Fellow Skipper said I was supposed to give you a hand on anything that might come up. Then you just made it. Hmm? Woman in the next office, you better talk to her. What's it about? It'll be better if you got it straight from her. Was she a crank? I don't think so. See what you can figure. All right. Mrs. Eggers? Yes, Miss Gardner. You ready to do something about this? Yes, ma'am. I'd like you to meet Sergeant Friday. Joe, this is Mrs. Eggers. Now, how do you do? Miss Eggers? If you'd give him the story the way you told it to me. You bet I will. Sit down, young man. I'll tell you all about it. All right. Get your book out. I beg your pardon? Your book. You're going to take some notations, aren't you? Well, if you'll just tell us what this is all about. Yeah. 
Well, I don't want you to get the idea that I'm the nosy type. I'm not. It's just that I take an interest in the things that go on around me. Civil-minded is the way they put it in the papers. Uh-huh. Of course, there are people who say that I pay too much mind to their business, but it isn't true, not a bit of it. If you tell the sergeant what happened. Oh, yeah. Well, these people moved into the house about six months ago, the five of them. Yes, ma'am. Stevie, Pamela, Carol, Martin, and the mother, Rowena. Four kids and the mother. All right. Would you like to go on? Well, now, right off, I could spot this woman. I've seen a lot of them. Well, how do you mean that, Miss Eggers? You can make it crystal if it's any easier. Yes, ma'am. What did you mean, that you've seen a lot of them? Alkies, you know, drunks. Mm-hmm. Well, she's one. I could spot it right off. Her and those four beautiful children. Yeah. Well, the first few months they lived there, I'd maybe see her a couple times a week, you know, going in the house or coming out. It was a couple times a week. I see. Last week, ten days, I hadn't seen her at all. Not even a little sight. Mm-hmm. So right off, I figured that something was wrong. That's the way it looks to me. All right, thank you, Miss Eggers. We'll check on the house right away. Well, that's what I wanted this policewoman to do. I told her I'd go right along with you. Well, that won't be necessary. Now, listen, young man. If there's anything wrong with them kids, I want to know about it. I want to do my part. The whole neighborhood's talking. Is that right? Sure. Little Stevie's been to all the houses looking for something to do, asking for work. It just seems to me that there's something wrong about the whole caboodle of them. Not seeing the mother and the way the boy don't eat the lunch plate. Not seeing the other kids. There's something that don't fit over there. All right, ma'am, we'll look right into it. You just do that. We'll see what I say is true. Thank you, Mrs. Eggers. Don't go thanking me. Just trying to be civil-minded, that's all. Mm-hmm. Just seems that there isn't anybody who cares about those kids. Well, that's not true, Miss Eggers. What? We do. 8.14 p.m. Policewoman Irene Gardner and I left the office and drove over to the address the Eggers woman had given us. The house was a small, one-story, clabbered building located on the rear of the lot. The front yard was overgrown with weeds and there were neighborhood advertising papers lying around. When we arrived, there was a faint light on in one of the front rooms. Irene and I went up to the front door and we knocked. We got no answer. I tried the door, but we found it locked. There was no sound from inside the place. The shades were drawn over the windows so that it was impossible for us to see into the house. We walked around to the rear and tried the back door. It's locked. Yeah, doesn't look like there's anybody home. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk to that Eggers woman again, huh? All right. Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? From the story she gave us, the kid should be at home. Well, she might be seeing things, Joe. You know, trying to figure out some way to get attention. Yeah, it might be. Didn't seem like that to me, though. Joe? What? What do you got there? The front window. There, you see it? Yeah. There's somebody in there. Come on, let's go. Yeah. Not answering. Come on, open up in there. We know you're in there. Come on. Open the door. What do you want? Police officers, let us in. There's nothing wrong. Go away. No, we can't do that. Now, come on, open up. Who are you going to arrest? Nobody. We just want to talk to you. You sure that's all? That's right. Okay. Just a minute. What do you want? You Pamela Telford? I haven't done anything wrong. Well, we didn't say you did. Then what are you doing around here? What are you looking for? Is your mother in? What? Is your mother home? Well, yeah, she's here. Well, we'd like to see her if it's all right. You can't. You can't see her. Well, afraid we're going to have to. She's lying down asleep. That's why you can't talk to her. Well, what's the matter, little girl? Nothing. Why'd you ask something like that? Don't you think you better let us in? We're going to have to talk to your mother. 
But she's asleep. She's tired. You can't talk to her. You can't. Ah, come on. You want to go and wake her up? There's some things we've got to talk to her about. I wonder if we could come in. It's kind of wet out here. Hmm? How about it? Then you can get your mother and we can have our talk, huh? I guess you can come in. I guess it's all right. Come on in, Joe. Yeah. The front room was about 12 feet square. The only light in the room came from a candle and a jelly glass on a table. The only furniture in the place was the table that held the candle and a torn artificial leather and chrome couch. The floor was covered with paper, rain-soaked cardboard boxes, and dirty clothes. At a half a dozen different places, drops of dirty water were seeping through the roof. The water was being caught in empty tin cans that had been placed around the room. To the left was a door to a bedroom. In it, in a wooden crib, were two children. From the descriptions we'd gotten from the Eggers woman, we recognized them as Martin Telford, age four, and his sister Carol, age two. As soon as the children saw Irene and me, they hid their heads under the dirty blanket that covered the crib. There was nothing else in the room except a dirty mattress lying on the floor in one corner. From the appearance of the bedding, it hadn't been laundered or changed in at least three weeks. On the other side of the house, a small kitchen was piled high with dirty dishes, pieces of rotting food, and empty tin cans. The plumbing in the house had apparently been out of order for several weeks. While Irene and I looked over the house, the girl who'd met us at the door, Pamela Telford, followed us. When we got back to the front room, she started to cry. <laughs> all right, do you want to tell us where she is? Come on, Pamela, it's not as bad as all that, is it? Here, here's a handkerchief. Here you are. Now, where's your mother? She's out looking for a job. It's kind of late for that, isn't it? I don't know. That's what she's doing, though. Out looking for a job. Well, now, why'd you tell us that she was here tonight? Because I didn't know what you wanted. I thought you were trying to arrest her. Well, why'd you think that? Because that's what she said. Your mother said that? Yes. She told us that policemen arrested people. She told us about it. How you did it once to her. Your mother's been arrested? Yes. Do you know why? Because she was. Well, what for? Do you know? She got sick. She got sick and they put her in jail. Mm -hmm. That's why I told you she was asleep. I thought that you'd go away and leave us alone. It's sure cold in here. Yeah. Do you have any heat in the house, Pamela? There's a heater in the bedroom. Oh, I'll turn it on. Good. It doesn't work. What? The heater doesn't work. Marty was playing one day and he broke the little rods in it. It doesn't work anymore. Well, we should be able to get some heat out of it. No, you won't. There isn't any gas. They turned it off. Mm-hmm. Well, I think maybe you youngsters better come downtown with us, don't you think? Why? Well, it'll be warm down there, a lot more comfortable for you. We can't go. we got to wait here. That's all right, Pamela. We'll leave word for your mother where you are. Maybe that's your mother now, huh? No, it's Steve. Who are you? He's a policeman. What do you want? There's nothing wrong here. Nothing for you to come butting in for. We want to see your mother, son. She hasn't done anything. Why don't your cops leave her alone? All the time you're after, never leave her alone. You're kind of rough for a little guy, aren't you? That's none of your business. I know my rights. I know I'm good. Well, look here, son. We're going to take you downtown and give you a good meal, just until we can talk to your mother, that's all. Then you're going to bring us back? Well, we'll see. How about Marty and Carol? You taking them, too? Yeah. Going to give them something to eat? Yes, that's right. Okay, we'll go with you. Just for tonight, though, that's all. Just for tonight. You understand? Yeah. Want another thing? Yes, what's that? We're paying our own way. I've got money. Anything you give us, we're going to pay for. Well, you won't have to do that, son. Well, I'm going to. We don't need charity. We're getting along all right. Everybody has a little rough luck now and then. Everybody. Mom tries. She really does. She's been looking for a job for a long time. Uh-huh. All right, Steve, you want to help get the others ready to leave? 
I'm not sure we can go. Well, I'm afraid you're going to have to, son. All right, but just for tonight. But the only reason is that I want Marty and Carol and Pamela to have something hot to eat. There's something wrong with the stove, says we can't cook on it. That's the only reason we're going. Just because there's something wrong with the stove. The gas is turned off. No, it isn't. It just don't work. But whatever we eat, whatever we get, we're going to pay for it. I've got the money. Well, I told you once before that won't be necessary. But it is, too. We're not taking any charity. We've never taken any. We're not going to start now, either. Anything that's done for us is going to be paid for. Yeah, I guess that's right, Steve. Huh? It'll be paid for. p.m. Men from the crime lab arrived and photographed the entire house. The pictures were held for evidence. A search of the house showed that there was no food for the children. In a cardboard box in the bedroom under a pile of toilet articles, we found a photograph of a man and a woman taken at what appeared to be a beach photographer's. Irene and I checked through the rest of the house, but we found nothing that would indicate where the mother of the four Telford children had gone. The youngsters were taken to juvenile hall, bathed, given clean clothes, and fed. At first, Steve Telford refused to eat anything until he was assured that his two sisters and his brother were being given the same kind of food. After the boy had finished eating, Irene and I talked to him. His previous uncooperative attitude had changed, and he seemed anxious to help us find his mother. This is the longest she's ever been gone. I'm beginning to think there might be something wrong. Well, when did you see her last, Steve? This is Friday, isn't it? Yes, February 8th. Uh-huh. It was last Tuesday, then. You mean this week, son? No, a week ago. A week ago, Tuesday. Well, what did she say when she left? Just like always. She said she wasn't feeling very good and she was going out and trying to look for work. What kind of work does she do? Well, she's a waitress. A good one, too. Mm-hmm. That's a trouble, I guess. She's so good. What do you mean? Well, there are only a couple of places that Mom says are any good. Well, you know, where she want to work. I don't believe I understand what you mean, Steve. Well, Mom always said that she wasn't just a hash-slinger. That's what she called oh, it. Oh, I see. She said that she was a waitress and she couldn't go to work just any place. Mm-hmm. Where'd she work last? A big place out in Beverly Hills. Forgot the name right now. But when she got the job before she went to work, Mom took us out there. We didn't go right in, but we stood in front and looked at it. Big place, real nice. You know, all kind of glass in front. And you could see the people inside having a good time. We didn't go in, but we could see it good. How long did your mother work there? Well, she, she had some trouble, and she had to quit. Well, what do you mean, trouble? Well, she got sick, and the man who was her boss got mad at her. And I guess he said a lot of things that Mom didn't like. So Mom told him that he couldn't talk to her like that, and then she quit. Your mother ever tell you what was wrong with her? Steve? No, she didn't. Did you see a doctor about it? You might as well know it. You're going to find out anyway. What's that, son? Well, Mom drank a lot. Sometimes she'd drink too much, and then she'd get sick. That's what was wrong. Mm-hmm. Where's your father, Steve? He died before Carol was born. Right before I want you to take a look at a picture for us, will you? Look at it and tell us if you know who the man in it is. All right. There you are. That's Mom. Mm-hmm. You know who the man is? No. I don't think I ever saw him before. Does your mother have any men friends? No, I don't think so. At least she never told me about him. She always said that the kids were enough for her, that we were all that mattered. She used to say that when she got a steady job, we were all going to live good. She used to tell us how one day the phone would ring and all our troubles would be over. Just like that. One day we've had a little trouble and the next, everything was going to be all right. Mm-hmm. Well, she really believed it, too. Just all of a sudden the phone was going to ring and all our troubles would be over. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how to tell her. Tell her what, son? That they turned the phone off. We had the name Rowena Telford checked through R&I. We found that the boy's story was true. 
The woman had been arrested once on a charge of 4127A LAMC, being drunk in a public place. Irene put in a call to the waitresses' union and asked them to check to see if the woman was working any place in town. They came back with the information that the last job she'd held had been six months before and that she'd been fired for insubordination and for being drunk. We showed the picture of the man and woman that we'd found at the Telford home around the department in the hopes that one of the officers might recognize the place where it was taken. None of them did. The next morning, we had several copies made, and we began a search of the bars along 5th Street. We asked each bartender if he'd ever seen the man or the woman. In the first four places we checked, we got yes answers to the query about the woman, but none of the people we talked to could tell us anything about the man in the picture. Two more days passed without results. In the meantime, a warrant had been issued ordering the arrest of Rowena Telford, charging her with child neglect. A local and an APB were gotten out on her. On the third day after we'd started our search for the missing woman, we talked with a bartender who was able to give us the name of the man in the picture. He described the man as a fry cook in one of the smaller restaurants down on 5th Street. We checked the restaurant, but we found that he'd been fired on Monday, the 28th of January. A check of his home address gave us no indication as to where he might be. Irene and I went back to the office and checked the name through R&I. Joe? Yeah? Did you come up with anything? Check the name. He's registered as an ex-convict. Uh-huh. Where'd he fall? Back in Pennsylvania. Did time for ADW. Well, we better talk to him, huh? Right now, he looks awful good. Why do you say that? What he was arrested for. Yeah. He tried to beat a woman to death. You are listening to Dragnet, the authentic story of your police force in action. immediate search was started for the man in the picture with Rowena Telford. From friends of his, we found that we might be able to locate him at a hamburger stand down at Santa Monica. Tuesday, February 12th, policewoman Irene Gardner and I drove down to the beach. Should be it up there, huh? Yeah. Go ahead. Thanks. It's warm in here. Yeah. Yeah? We'd like to see Willis Thatcher. What for? Police officers. You're a Thatcher, aren't you? Yeah, what do you want with me? A couple of questions we'd like to ask you. Sure, I got nothing to hide. No reason to give you any trouble. What do you want to know? You know a woman named Rowena Telford? Why do you ask that? It's a simple question, Thatcher. Can you give us the right kind of an answer? How about it? Yeah, I know her. Why? What's she done now? When did you see her last? I don't know, a couple of weeks ago. Narrow that down, will you? Why? Listen, anything she did, I had no part of. We understand you were pretty friendly with her. That's not true. Sure, maybe I had a couple of dates with her. Not more than a couple. That's it. And anybody in the world could put up with it for more than that. Why do you say a thing like that? You ever know her? No, we're looking for her. You? No, I've never met her. That's how come you can ask that kind of question. And if you knew her, if you spent any time with her, you had to know what I mean. Well, suppose you tell us. She's a lush. A real lush. All the time boozing it up. Wasn't so bad that she got loaded, but she was real loud when she was tanked up. Real loud. Is that right? Sure, check around. Ask her friends. Talk to them. They'll all tell you the same story. Every one of them. First off, she'd have a couple of drinks. Next thing you know, any fellow with her would be trying to get out of a place without getting his head knocked off. She was always starting trouble. Sit down, order a drink. The next thing you know, some guy was asking you outside. Well, I ain't built to go outside too often. I get hurt bad when I fight. Mm-hmm. Does she have any other boyfriends? You don't listen very good, do What's you? What's that? I told you, isn't anybody around here it had much to do with her. As far as I know, there wasn't nobody who went with her. How'd she seem the last time you saw her? All right. She had a little hangover. She always had one of those. She seemed depressed about anything? Not that she talked about. Mm-hmm. You say anything about leaving town? Not to me. Listen, how about giving me a break and telling me what this is all about? What are you after Rowena for? These fights you told us about. Do you ever have any arguments with Ms. Telford? I don't think that's any of your business. We're writing it down that it is. Now, how about an answer? 
We had a couple of beefs. I told you, you couldn't go around with her and not have a little trouble. Did you ever hit her? We're back to that, huh? What do you mean? You know the record, the time I did. You figure maybe I did something to Rowena, isn't that it? You think I hurt her? We're asking you. Well, you're way off the road. I ain't gonna try to con you. Sure, maybe I had a lot of reasons to want to belt her. I used to think a lot of Rowena. Awful lot. But that's all over. All I want her to do is to leave me alone. Stay away from me. I didn't ever hit her. I didn't hurt her, no matter what you think. All right. You gotta believe that. I guess it sounds funny. I ain't trying to fool anybody. I'm ready to admit it. I'm a bum. Mm -hmm. She didn't have to keep telling me, not all the time. I knew it. Yeah. Nobody likes to be called a bum. Mm -hmm. Even if you know it's true. 1.47 p.m. We drove the suspect over to his rooming house and we checked the premises. We found nothing that would definitely tie him in with the disappearance of the Telford woman. After leaving his room, we took him downtown where he was held for further investigation on a charge of suspicion of murder. We checked communications, but we found that there'd been no word on the missing woman. Her name and description had been checked through the files in Missing Persons Bureau without results. 3.40 p.m., Frank came by the office and said that the trial he was attending was dragging on and that it would be a couple more days before he'd be back on duty with me. A petition was filed on behalf of the children charging violation of Section 273 APC, unfit home, asking that they be made wards of the juvenile court. Policewoman Irene Gardner put in a call to the next-door neighbor of the Telford woman, but we'd found that there'd been no trace of the missing woman since we'd removed the children. 5.12 p.m. We finished up the log for the day, and we were leaving the office. I got it. Juvenile Friday. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, what's that address? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, sir, we'll be right there. Right, thank you. What do you got? Bar over on East 6th. Yeah? Rowena Telford just walked in. The bartender was one of those that we'd questioned when we first started our investigation. At the time, he knew the Telford woman, but he said that he hadn't seen her for several weeks. On the phone, he told me that she just walked into his bar. Irene Gardner and I left the office and drove over to the East 6th Street address, but the woman had just left. We had her description and a description of the clothes she was wearing. We put that out to all cars in the area, but she was not picked up. Irene Gardner and I went back to the office and we put out a supplementary bulletin on the woman. At 8.14 p.m., we got a call from the woman who'd made the original complaint, Mrs. Crystal Eggers. She told us that the Telford woman had just walked into her own home. Irene and I left the office and we drove out to the house on Vallejo Street. Light on. She must still be home. Yeah. Who is it? Police officers. We'd like to talk to you. Just a minute. It's about time you got here. You got them yet? I beg your pardon? You got the little brats? They all run off, all of them. Get my hands on them and they're going to get what for. Where are they? We have them downtown, Miss Telford. Why don't you bring them home? This is where they belong. I get my hands on him. Oh, what I'm going to give that little Steve. You mind if we come in? No, come right ahead. You got to kind of excuse the way the house looks. I've been away for a couple of days. You can see how the kids can mess the place up. I'm Sergeant Friday. This is Miss Gardner. Oh, how do you do? Would you like to sir? No, that's all right. How come you didn't bring them back? They're being held in juvenile hall, Miss Telford. For what? Well, when we found them, they were suffering from malnutrition. This place here, it's not fit for youngsters. Oh, so you just took them out and put them in a home. the way it is? Yes, ma'am, that's the way it is. Well, you've got your nerve. You really have. What? You, coming in here and breaking up a home like this. You ought to be ashamed of yourself. We have a warrant for your arrest. Me? Yes, ma'am. Now, you listen to me, cop. 
You've got no right to come in here and break up my home. I know all about you cops. All about you pussyfooting around trying to make everybody think you're so good. I know you for what you are, and I'll tell you this. Yes, ma'am, what's that? You better get those kids back here fast, do you hear me? You get them back here fast, because if you don't, I'm going to sue you and her and the city for every dime it's got. I'll take this to any court in the country I have to, but I'm going to get my kids back. You ain't half as good as you think you are. You want it plain, real plain, so you can understand it? You stink, that's what. All of you stink. All right, ma'am, I think that's enough of that. Where have you been for the last two weeks? It was the most terrible thing ever happened to me. To anybody. He told me he loved me and said we was going to get married. I thought it'd be nice for the kids. That's what I thought, for the kids. And we was going to drive down to Mexico and get married. All nice. Mm-hmm. And everything was going nice. I gave Stevie a couple of dollars and told him to take care of things. And then we left and drove all the way to San Diego without stopping. And then we had some lunch on the way to get married. We had a couple of drinks just to make the food taste better. That's all. And then all of a sudden, I got sick again. And he walked out on me. Left me right there in the bar all by myself. And all the promises he made to me, all the things we was going to have, all of it, just a lot of lies. As soon as I get a little sick, he just had a couple of drinks. He walked out on me, left me right there, all by myself, you know, mm-hmm. all by myself. I didn't have no money, no way to get back. What was I going to do? I believed him. I really thought he was going to marry me. I believed all he said, how things were going to be better. I believed it all. The dirtiest trick I ever heard of, walking out on a girl like that. A dirty trick. I got one to beat it. Hmm? The one you pulled on your children. story you've just heard is true. The names were changed to protect the innocent. On June 4th, trial was held in Department 97, Superior Court of the State of California, in and for the County of Los Angeles. In a moment, the results of that trial. Now, here is our star, Jack Webb. Thank you, George Fenneman. Friends, we've tried very hard to set a dragnet standard. Now, to put that in just a few words, we try to make each program the kind of entertainment that you want. Now, we're going to keep working real hard at that. Rowena Esther Telford was tried and convicted of violation of Section 273A PC, endangering the life and safety of a minor, which is punishable by imprisonment in the county jail for a period of not more than one year. The four Telford children were made wards of the juvenile court and were placed in foster homes. You have just heard Dragnet a series of authentic cases from official files. Technical advice comes from the office of Chief of Police W.H. Parker, Los Angeles Police Department. Technical advisors, Captain Jack Donahoe, Sergeant Marty Wynn, Sergeant Vance Brasher. Heard tonight were June Whitley, Sammy Ogg, Virginia Gregg. Script by John Robinson. Music by Walter Schumann. Hal Gibney speaking.
Watch an entirely different Dragnet case history each week on your local NBC television station. Please check your newspapers for the day and time. Chesterfield has brought you Dragnet, transcribed from Los Angeles. Dragnet, The Big Filth, an episode from Groundhog Day, 1954, and from The Big Broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Jill Arold Bailey is our co-producer. Kenny Pirog is our audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington, celebrating 60 years as your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. We're going to hear an episode of X-1 now, and it sort of astonished me that at the beginning of this particular show, there's a reference to science fiction as journalism. But then really, when you think about it, a lot of science fiction has turned out to be news reporting way ahead of its time. And the story we're about to hear is an example. If you've ever tapped a credit card or heard a little ding when it's been successfully authorized, then you'll be amazed at the prescience of this 1956 radio play. It's prophetic in another way, too. If you like the actor Mandel Kramer as our current Johnny Dollar, then fasten your seatbelt after you've donned your spacesuit, because his performance in this program could have served as his audition for that role, which he wouldn't assume for another five years. The story even begins with Mr. Kramer as an investigator talking about his expense account. And indeed, if America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator had ever gone intergalactic, this could have easily been one of his adventures. It contains a reference to the detective fiction author Mickey Spillane and a satirical swipe at the then relatively new phenomenon of rock and roll music. Oh, and for the record, there really is a concept in biology called protective mimicry. And that's the title of this October 3rd, 1956 episode of NBC's X-1. The National Broadcasting Company at this time wishes to thank the editors and publishers of Galaxy Magazine for a special award which has just been presented to the program X-1. The award cites X-1 for the outstanding adaptation and the original method of presentation of adult science fiction stories to the vast audience that has shown increasing interest in this newest form of journalism. The NBC Radio Network is proud to receive this citation on behalf of X-1. NBC is also happy to acknowledge the enthusiastic response and support of the listening audience to this program. Your many letters of encouragement and constructive criticism are always gratefully received. Your criticisms carefully noted, and whenever possible, your suggestions acted upon. Please listen at the end of this program for a special free offer. And now... X minus one. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire.
from the far horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company presents X minus one. Tonight's story, Protective Mimicry, by Algis Budris. Frankly, I think I'll probably have to take my expense account clear up to the Central Gallic Civil Service Board. My friends tell me to forget it. But take it from me, a rap in the credit book like this isn't easy to laugh off. Not on a grade four civil service pay scale. So I've made my beef out in quadruplicate and filed it. Usually a special agent in United Galactic Federation's Department of the Treasury Investigations Division Currency Section doesn't have much trouble with his swindle sheet. But this, well, this one's a corker. To understand, you gotta know how they make the stuff. The young Gallic men is in New Geneva on Canopus Three. I remember I went around with the 40 deci credit tour when I first joined the staff. The guide was a cute little brunette from one of the rim stars who was later fired following an annual pan-solstice office party. I didn't pay much attention to her spiel. She was dressed in the new neo-Minoan style, but I got the general idea. This is a demonstration machine, of course, but you will notice the indestructible fiber coming off that spool at the right. It goes into the slot in the machine there. Now, if you'll pass along, you see it goes between those two rollers through six or seven chemical baths. No, I'm not sure what chemicals. That's restricted information. It's stamped, analyzed for flaws, dyed, and then run through this unit here. This is the most carefully guarded part of the process. The unit is removed from the plant each night and locked in the deep space vault on the satellite station directly overhead. After the strip emerges here, it is chopped into convenient lengths and carefully removed into armored cars. It is called money. What does that secret unit do? Well, that's a very good question. You see, the currency is non-defaceable, fireproof, immune to wear, weather, and water. But the most important thing is an electronic pattern impressed into the fiber by that secret pattern. You all know when you cash a bill, it is passed over an electronic plate that reads the pattern. If the serial number and the pattern match, well, but if they don't, well, first I'll put an ordinary credit note over the beeper. There. Perfectly good. Now, a simulated counterfeit bill without the electronic pattern. <laughs> well, now, that wouldn't fool anybody long, would it? Uh, could anybody duplicate that electronic pattern? Well, that's a very good question. Only the government has the equipment to put that in. Your currency is safe and sound. Don't you worry about that. Are there any more questions? Yeah. How about a drink after the tour? Well, that... Oh. That's a very good question. sure was. So was the answer. Well, getting back to money. The engraving, the chemical composition of the ink and the fiber would be tough enough to duplicate. But that electronic pattern snaps the clincher on it. That's why Chief Inspector Saxgard of my division looked sourly at me when I came into his office and spread a fistful of credit notes on his desk. What's that? What's it look like? A handful of fifties. Why? Put a couple of them over your beeper plate. 
Okay. Well, they're perfectly okay. What's it all about? Look at the serial numbers. Hmm. Three, four, five, six, five, six, seven, eight, M. Look at the others. Three, four, five, six, five... What? Let me see them. Save your eyes. They're all the same. Fourteen 50-credit notes with identical serial numbers. That's impossible. And every one of them goes over a beeper plate, quiet as a sophomore climbing into a dormitory window after hours. Formal, sir, where did you get these? They came into the New York Clearinghouse from a branch on Den of Eleven. The manager blew his top. He called us the minute he spotted them and sent them out to us. How about the manager? Is he blabbing all over the banker's club about it? I read the ungallic riot act to him. He'll keep it under his hat. Good. At least we won't have any financial panics for a while. Have you checked these through the lab? Well, the ink and paper is government stock, and they match government beepers. The lab plates didn't squawk any more than yours did. Now, you could spend these anywhere as long as you only pass them one at a time. Bumholzer, you know, since the beeper plate came in, we've been sitting on our tails in this department, building up our pensions. Oh, I wouldn't say that. Neither would I outside this office. But you know darn well nobody can expect to counterfeit a bill and get away with it. It's only because throughout the universe there's a certain percentage of people who will try anything once and a corresponding percentage of purblind idiots who will accept anything with engraving on it as money that we're here at all. Now, I've seen cigar coupons and crayon sketches come into this office. I've seen premium offers from household magazines, jet bus transfers, where some people would try to pick a Yale lock with a quarter of a pound of butter. Now, the only reason any queer can pass is because some goggle-eyed nudnik neglects to use his beeper plate. But I worry. I worry. For 15 years, I've sat in this stinking office and waited for somebody to invent a matter duplicator. Well, it looks like you can stop worrying. Look at those bills. Identical down to the whiskey stain in the corner. All right, Bumholzer. You call transportation and get out to Deneb 11 and find out if anybody in that neighborhood has a matter duplicator or if he hasn't what he has got. I picked up the department shuttle to the satellite and made fair connections up to Denim 11. It's a four-day run on drive, and I get free fall six, so I was glad to hit the port in Glub, which so helped me is the name of the only city on the place. Denim 11 is what we call in the department a mud ball. It's a jungle world with an atmosphere like a swatch of Harris tweed. I was smoking a cigarette when I got off the shuttle, and the air I pulled in made the smoke taste like well-decayed leaf mold. I was wringing wet two minutes after I left the air-conditioned port. I noticed the local costume would get you arrested on any beach in the galaxy, but it didn't matter since there's nothing titillating about pasty skin dripping with weary perspiration. I checked in with the regional office and found the resident agent tinkering with his air conditioner. Hi, Baumholzer. You know anything about the sealed power pack on this condenser? Yeah, if you keep banging at it like that, you'll crack the seal on the atomic shielding and your posterity will thank you. Three heads at a time. Oh, I guess I'd better not fool with it. Now take off your pants and pull up a chair. I don't mind if I do. Is it always this humid? Oh, no. In the hot season, it's worse. I'd send for a replacement part, but the fax line isn't too reliable. The last time I sent for a sealed unit, they shipped back an overage sea lion. Yeah, I know. I was on polar station on Ganymede when my heater element broke down. I faxed for three feet of element, and they shipped me back three fetal elephants. Yeah. Well, I suppose you're here about the queer bills, huh? Yeah. Got any lines on it? Well, my orders will lay off and let the central office handle it. Be my guest. Any ideas? No. 
Where do you figure to start? Well, this is the only city. I'll have to check it out. Uh, have you got a list of authorized beeper plates? Somewhere. Let's see here. Oh, look out. Why? There's a whittle fly on your arm. Hey, how does a thing that size get through the filters? Insects on denim are tricky. This one is a non-filterable virus in the larval stage. Then it blows up to this size. Carve his initials in your arm if he gets a good bite. That's why he's called a whittlefly. The whittlefly was only one of the darlings that made the fair city of Glub a garden spot. They had one cute little tyke called the laboratory beetle. Because when he bit you, he typed your blood and followed you around for days getting refilled. I had one take a sample of me as I went out the door of the residency with a list of beeper plates, and he followed me from store to store while I checked every installation in the city. The little devil would step up to the bar every once and again and take another shot of my hemoglobin. I even tried ducking in a men's room as fast, but he'd be waiting for me when I came out. Well, I slogged through Glove for three days and then poured myself back into the residence office. Did he come in? Who? The laboratory beetle. No, they usually hang around in the hall and wait. <sighs> Sometimes when I've got a poker game going, you can see three or four of the little... Angels buzzing around outside, waiting like chauffeurs outside the opera. Wow. You draw a blank? Well, I found seven defective beeper plates, but nobody remembers any queer bills being passed. You know, who checks serial numbers? They must have come in one at a time. And the clerks at the bank always were out to lunch and referred me to the next guy. You got any lotion for insect bites? Your desk drawer. In a way, the beeper plates make it tougher. Nobody even looks at the bills anymore. Just throw them over the plate, and if no bells ring, it's okay. How about the other angle? Matter duplicator? I checked invoices and purchase records. Nobody's been buying electronic parts that can't account for every tube. I thought I had something. One fellow bought 12 of those giant lithium cathode tubes, but it turned out his wife was having him wired his lamp bases. Well, I better be going. I hate to keep my little insect friend out there in suspense as to cocktail time. You got another lead? Yeah, I found a bar that makes a Tom Collins with real lemon juice instead of battery acid. managed to duck my lab beetle in a revolving door. He went around twice and shot out into the street, so I settled down at a table at the bar and tried to make believe that I couldn't taste Den of Eleven atmosphere in my Tom Collins. I was chewing on an ice cube when I looked up. Mr. Baumholzer? That's right. I want to talk to you about money. He was a terrestrial, but he'd been on Deneb a long time because he was wearing the native garment about the size of a five-pound sugar sack. His hair, which was potato-field gray, was arranged in the old-fashioned Presley style. You know, the ancient long sideburns, duck's tail in the rear that vice presidents wear in family-style banks. His ears had little bits of bone stuck in them, and his eyebrows wandered all over his face, and he stood about six foot eight. And I waited him out, and presently he spoke up again. You are the same, Mr. Baumholzer, who's been going around asking all those questions about duplicate ungallic notes? That's right. Can I help you, Mr. Uh... Munger, Duodecimus Munger. Now, this bid's fair to be fascinating. I was under the impression that my mission here was just a, a wee bit on the secret side. There are no secrets in glove. Hmm. Now, won't you pull up a chair, Mr. Munger? I'm afraid I haven't time. Well, join me in a drink. Are you really the Mr. Baumholzer that's working on this case for the Treasury Department? Yeah, sure. You're not the fellow that's turning out these duplicates, are you? Well, as a matter of fact, I am. What? And don't move. This is a Power 30 mistral coagulator I have. Look out with that thing. You've got it pointed at my head. Yes. I've got it set on high charge. It will fuse your brain solid. 
<clears throat> well, what else is new? Now, Mr. Baumholzer, stay right behind that table. Now, let's not make any rash decisions now. Hmm? Well, I can't very well see how I could let you live. Oh, come on. Oh, try. Try. <laughs> All right, now drop the gun. I'm afraid we'll be collecting a crowd. Give me that. Don't try to pick it up. I won't. I had something completely different in mind. Just like in those ancient legends the archaeologists keep digging up, the ones with the hard-boiled detective and the beautiful blonde, I felt the traditional roof fall in on the back of my head. As I went black, I remember thinking how odd it was that it was happening to me some 500 years after Spillane the Scrivener. I came to in the same archaic fashion with my head going around in a free orbit around my neck. Baumholzer, are you all right? I can't see. I'm blind. Everything's black. Well, open your eyes. Oh, where is he? Who? The guy who slugged me. What am I doing back at your office? Oh, some bartender brought you in. I thought you passed out from too much lemon juice. Oh, it was a guy named Munger. Which way did he go? Beach me. Munger? Hmm... Tall fella in native dress? Yeah. Oh, well, you might as well forget about it. Why? Well, I can order a pickup on him the next time he's in town. They'll sock him away in a psycho ward for a while. Forget it. Look, I am not an old lady calling up complaining that the nasty delinquents are teasing my cats. That Munger's tied in with the queer. Him? He said he was the passer. Well, that can't be. Munger, 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 Munger. You got a file on him? Yeah. I get a number of complaints on him, so do the local cops. He's, well, I didn't want to make trouble. He's a very wealthy man. I'll bet. What does he do? Well, he's a merchant or something in a native village. Once or twice a year, he comes out and paints the town, but a counterfeiter? I would like to talk to him again with the mistral in my hand. He had a mistral? Well, that's a violation of a municipal ordinance. You're supposed to check him at the quarantine Look, case. I'm not investigating parking tickets and violations of the anti-noise laws. This is a counterfeiting case. Now, do you know where I can find him? Well, he's probably gone back to his village. Where's that? Out in the jungle. All right, get out your rubbish, friend. We're going out after him. Suppose you fill your bathtub full of mud, build a fire under it, turn on the shower, and crawl in and wallow a little. Do that, and you've got a fair idea of the Denebian jungle. I went out with Hall, the resident agent, and we started off. Stick close, Baumholzer. Visibility is about ten feet. I'll eat everything I can see within ten feet. Ow! What happened? I walked into a tree. Help me up out of the mud. We puddled on for a couple of hours. The rain was so thick I didn't see the trees until I bounced off of them and sat down in the warm mud. I reflected as I struggled to my feet what a terrible waste... In the beauty salons of Charles of the Ritz Asteroid, ladies from all over the galaxy paid thousands of credits for hot mud baths to take the wrinkles out and make their skin smooth and caressable. And here was I getting a much more thorough treatment every time I sat down. They issue a lot of special equipment from department stores, and it all functioned perfectly. My neo-latex galoshes were fine, but stuck in the mud. My Minipower goggles and wipers kept my eyes clear, but they didn't keep me from crashing into every tree. My leak-proof sportsman's flashlight stayed dry as a bone, but powerful as it was, it couldn't light up more than three feet in the pelting rain. Paul, the resident, led the way, consulting a compass and a waterproof map, and finally we stopped, and I noticed that there wasn't any rain coming down on me. It's a rain shelter. The natives build them. Kind of them. Well, they're on all the trails. If you go more than a day in the rain, you go punchy from water drumming on your hat. I believe it. Well, now, don't sit down. You'll sink in. I don't know. Theoretically, a broader base should keep you from sinking like snowshoes. Well, also increases the suction. I'll stand. 
How far is Munger's village? Either two miles or 22. I can't read the map very well. Hey, wait a minute. Listen. Well, that's the rain. No, 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 no. You hear that, that, that squelching? Somebody's coming. Oh, yeah, yeah. From over there. Natives? Maybe. There he comes. Well, we've got first pick on the shelter. It's a native tradition. First come, first dry. Yeah, there's somebody out there, all right. Who's there? Who is it? A friend of mine, Mr. Baumholzer. All right, Munger. Where did you come from? Don't move. I have several friends pointing long spears at your kidney. Shall we go, gentlemen, back to my village? I believe you were looking for it. Munger was so intent on me that he didn't seem to notice his hall sidled off into the darkness. And when he did, he set up a desperate cackle. He had a few of his fraternity brothers chase down the trail with spears waving wildly, but they came back murmuring some kind of a Choctaw, which seemed to carry the implication that Hall had gotten away like a big-bottomed turtle. Well, Mr. Baumholzer, your companion's action has saved your life for a while. Yeah, he'll bring back a platoon of Marines, and they'll reduce that village to a bullion cube. We'll just have to hold you as a hostage in case help should arrive. Thanks. At any rate, shall we get back to the village? had about ten natives with him, each one about seven foot tall, with those big, flat feet that evolved on Deneb for walking in primordial ooze. They were dressed in the standard native loincloth with matching accessories, namely ten-foot spears. When, as we started out along the trail, I got a good look at Munger's loincloth that was composed of tastefully arranged thousand-credit notes. Well, by the time we got back to the village, the rain had stopped. The humidity, of course, was still 120%, and the only difference was that the moisture just loitered around rather than actually falling. There was some kind of a clam bake going on in the village. The natives were pounding a couple of drums, and as far as I could see, getting rapidly stinko on some kind of jungle juice that they passed around in huge gourds. They were leaping and dancing, and as far as I could tell, doing snappy sayings and fancy patter as I sat on some kind of a low mushroom and tried to ignore the two spears that were pressed against my throat. It felt as if a nervous barber was trying to shave me with his razor tied on the end of a ten-foot pole. After a bit, Munger strode up to me with all the dignity of the lord of the jungle, and he waved the spears a foot away, pulled up a mushroom, and sat down. Actually, you know, that wasn't a native rhythm at all. The original Denebian music is a kind of quiet, flute-like melody, something like Mozart. Mm. That didn't sound very flute-like. Yes, I know. One of the first terrestrial anthropologists out here to study the Denebs took recordings of their music, and then, to be polite, he played them in a few recordings that he'd made on an earlier field trip Unfortunately, they were from that lost rocket colony on Ceres. Their music was a degenerate ancient form called, I believe, Roland Rock. The Denebs liked it. And they've been doing it ever since. Hmm. What's the party? They're propitiating the tree. I don't know why. It's never failed yet. But they're very conservative. They've got to go into this act every night before I can do my stuff. It lasts all night. Want a drink? No, no, thanks. wish I had a fifth of something civilized. I, I've been drinking this native swamp water oh, for much too long. He was right. They kept it up all night, and I sat trying to figure out in which hut Munger kept his machinery to make those duplicate bills. Finally, the weak light that passes for dawn on Deneb came up, and the natives quit hollering. 
Let's go, Bonanza. I hate to keep a man's suspense. You're curious about those duplicate bills. Well, now you're going to find out how it's done. Well, it's good of you to show me. I suppose your theory is that I'll never live to tell about it. That's very sensible of you. I like a man who can face facts. across the mud square to the base of a tremendous tree, which I gathered was the guest of honor for last night's chivalry. I still couldn't see the connection, but I was willing to wait. The natives sat around in a deathly hush, and Munger and I stepped forward. You notice? Nothing up my sleeves. As a matter of fact, no sleeves. And not much arm, either. Now, I take this 50-credit note. Care to examine oh, it? Oh, I've seen it, and 14 others like it. Yes, I only use a 1,000-credit bill when the natives need new loincloths. These 50s are a lot easier to dispose of. Oh, I don't know. I traced them to you. But that was a mistake. One of my contacts got a little greedy, spent too many bills in one place. All right. Now, I used to have the natives make a loud noise, but I'll use your gun instead here. You see, I take this bill, fold it, so, and so, and so. And there. What are you making a paper plane for? <laughs> Just watch. I raise the note in one hand, I aim at the tree, and I fire your gun up in the air. Like this. As he let fly with my gun, Munger sailed the paper airplane straight at the tree, and it sailed right into the foliage. Now watch! The bill came sailing back out of the leaves, and right behind it came another one. And then the air was filled with paper planes, squadrons, wings, armadas of paper airplanes, each one made up of a folded 50-credit note. They sailed out over the whole village, and Munger set the natives to collecting them and bringing them back. <laughs> there you are. There'll be several thousands of them. Look, 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 look. Genuine. Absolutely genuine. And I suppose they'd go over a beeper plate without a tinkle. Startling, isn't it? Protective mimicry. Yes, yes, precisely. You know, I discovered this tree six years ago uh, while I was attempting to evade the clutches of the law on a confidence rep. I swung an axe at it to blaze a trail, and 50 axes came bouncing back at me. Well, I never heard of any plant developing mimicry to this extent. I know some plants and animals assume dangerous life forms as a camouflage, but this... Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not a botanist. All I know is that you scare the tree with a loud noise... You throw something at it, and it duplicates what it thinks is the danger. Well, huh. speaking of danger, it doesn't look as if your colleague is bringing any help. Oh, I'll miss your company. Interesting. You'll be shot with your own gun. Now, look, Munger. Don't wriggle. I hate a moving target. What is that? Looks like the cops, Munger, at the edge of the village. Home holster! Where are you? We outnumber them. Oh, I'll get you anyway. Oh, no. You can't run away from me. I'll shoot. I broke for the other side of the square, and just as he shot at me, I tripped over a pot and went flying smack into the tree. Well, that's about it. Here we sit in the spaceport on Denim 11, and I'm darned if I'll pay our transportation back until I hear that the office is going to okay my expense account. Munger? Oh, he's in jail at New Alcatraz. Once he missed a shot at me, it was all over. 
After I fell into the tree, he didn't stand a chance against us. That's right. Us. All 168 of me. Right, Ed? Right, right, right. 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 You have just heard X-1. Here is an important special announcement. In appreciation of bringing adult science fiction to the listening audience through the medium of this program, X-1, Galaxy Magazine wishes to make the following free offer to our listeners. For the first 2,500 who write in requesting it, we will send a sample copy of Galaxy Magazine at absolutely no cost. This is an opportunity to read the finest in adult science fiction just as you listen to it each week here on X-1. To get your free sample copy of Galaxy, just write a postcard or letter to X-1, NBC, Radio City, New York 20, New York, and ask for your free copy. Be sure to print your name and address plainly on your card or letter. This offer can be made only once. So if you want your own free copy of this leading science fiction publication, be sure to write without delay. Here is the address again. Write to X-1, NBC, Radio City, New York 20, New York. Your sample copy of Galaxy will be sent to you without obligation of any kind. Tonight, by transcription, X-1 has brought you Protective Mimicry, written by Algis Boudreaux, and adapted for radio by Ernest Canoy. Featured in tonight's cast were Mandel Kramer, Terry Keene, Charles Penman, Dick Hamilton, and Wendell Holmes. This is Roger Tuttle. X-1 was directed by Daniel Sutter and is an NBC Radio Network production. Remember, for your free sample copy of Galaxy, just send a postcard to X-1, NBC Radio City, New York 20, New York. Now be sure to print your name and address plainly on your card. This offer can be made only once, so if you want your own free copy of this leading science fiction publication, be sure to write without delay. The address again, X-1. NBC, Radio City, New York 20, New York. The Roaring Twenties in song and story. Hear Gordon McRae in The Best Things in Life Are Free tonight. Protective Mimicry, an X-1 episode from exactly 65 years ago tonight in 1956. You may have heard in the credits the name Terry Keene, a veteran radio actor who's still very much with us 
and she turns 96 this month. You heard her on the big broadcast from WAMU 88.5. I'm Murray Horwitz. When co-producer Jill Arald Bailey proposed our broadcasting One World Flight, the series that the virtuoso radio creator Norman Corwin prepared and executed 75 years ago, I was a bit concerned. Would his round-the-world inquiry into how to bring the peoples of the planet together still hold our interest? Well, I needn't have worried. From the very beginning of each episode, we know we're in the hands of a master storyteller who not only hits on an occasional truth, astonishingly, he also has a lesson or two for all of us today in the 21st century. You'll hear what I mean in the installment we're about to hear. It's the second program in the series, and it first aired on January 21st, 1947, CBS and Norman Corwin's series, One World Flight. Historic Flight Around the World by Wendell Wilkie during the dark days of the war blazes the phrase One World as a beacon for liberty-loving people everywhere. The Common Council for American Unity and the Wilkie Memorial of Freedom House have therefore decided to establish a One World Award patent after Mr. Wilkie's globe-circling trip as a dramatic reminder of his dream for all mankind. began one night last February in the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City. Some friends of the late Wendell Wilkie had gathered on the anniversary of his birthday to honor his memory. The former mayor of New York, Fiorello H. LaGuardia, was chairman of that occasion. Tonight, Mr. LaGuardia, speaking from the living room of his home in New York City, reenacts his role on that evening. After announcing the establishment of the award, Mr. LaGuardia paused and continues. The Common Council for American Unity and the Wilkie Memorial of Freedom House have agreed that this award be given to recognize and encourage contributions to the concept of one world, particularly in the field of mass communications such as press, radio, and moving pictures. The board of directors the two organizations have reached a decision as to the winner of this year's award. On their behalf, I have the pleasure of announcing that it is presented to Norman Corwin. This is Norman Corwin. From the voice of Mr. LaGuardia at the dinner to LaGuardia Field took four months of preparation. 
passports, visas, reservations, selection of route, inoculations, the building and testing of recording equipment, and a hundred personal requirements. And then in the middle of June, we set out. There were farewells, the boarding of the plane, the motors revving up, and out of the window, as we taxied down the field, a last glimpse of a cluster of friendly faces and waving hands. The day was bright and clear, the ship stainless and glistening. The only dark thing I recall about the moment were the headlines in the morning papers concerning the state of the peace. We took off. time to look at the country beneath us. Our job had already begun. The wire recorder was rigged up forward in the navigator station, and I tested it to see how it worked on the ship's electrical system. Collaborating with me in the test was a young passenger, nine years old, named Lionel Salem, who had wandered up and pumped me with questions about the machine. I showed him how it worked. Tell me, Lionel, uh, is this your first trip? Yes. You've done no flying at all? No, sir. Well, uh, how do you like it? Fine. And where are you going? Uh, to Brussels, and there we're going to take a train to Paris. What are you going to Paris for? Because that's where I was born. We're going, we're coming back in September. I see. You're not going to attend the peace conference, is that it? Nope. Would you like to attend the peace conference? Nope. Do you think you could contribute something to the peace conference if you attended it? Nope. Well, that's a frank answer. In the time it takes to travel by train from New York to Albany, this Pan-American clipper was flying over the lakes of Nova Scotia. In another hour, we landed at Gander, Newfoundland for fuel and lunch, and then we were off due east to cross the Atlantic. As the day wore on, we sighted icebergs 12,000 feet below us, looking like white flecks on the blue surface of the ocean. I struck up a conversation with a pleasant-faced, gray-haired man who turned out to be Vladimir Hoban, then... Czechoslovak ambassador to the United States. He was on his way home to Prague. We talked about Czechoslovakia and the war and about Wendell Wilkie, whom he had known. After a while, I switched on the recording machine and we passed the microphone between us. Mr. Horban disposed of my biggest question very simply when I asked what he thought the best means of promoting understanding between nations and tolerance among peoples. Well, that's a pretty big question. Which, anyway can be answered by two words if the people will understand them. That is decency and honesty. I said that one of the objectives of my trip was to find out whether decency and honesty were understood around the world, whether the average man had a sense of moral principle and could define it. The ambassador urged me out of curiosity to make a test at random right here aboard the clipper by stopping the first person to go by and drawing him into conversation on the subject. The first person to go by was a stewardess who was going by all the time in the course of her duties. She was Miss Romaine Cahoon, home in Forest Hills, Long Island. She warmed up to the subject quickly, and at one point, I confronted her with this. I said that for some time, excellent codes of decency and honesty, such as the Ten Commandments and various bills of rights, had been in practice. But I said they had been only roughly adhered to. 
and I suggested that perhaps something new in the way of principles might have to be added. Well, she disagreed with me. I uh, disagree with you in saying you think something new has to be added. I think that any uh, principle that is perfect in its inception doesn't have to be improved. I think it should be practiced more, but I don't think it's possible to improve it. Uh, this is my pet theory. Perhaps I'm wrong, but it seems to me that all wars and uh, international disagreements are results of, uh, shall we say, uh, magnified minor uh, quarrels and squabbles. I think it's most important that we, uh, shall I say, do our spring house cleaning at home before we try... Uh, our A signal light flashed over the door to the cockpit and Miss Cahoon went back to work. The plane roared along toward Ireland. As the night lengthened, the passengers sagged in their seats and slept. But Bland and I sat up talking on the chance that there might be something about the plane's routine to record so that those of you who've never crossed an ocean by air might tonight hear what it's like. There wasn't much, actually. 700 miles off the coast of Newfoundland, we recorded the voice of weather ship Charlie, a small craft flying in a wide circle 15,000 feet below us. Charlie is one of several ships of various registries assigned by international agreement to stay far out at sea and do nothing but supply weather information to transatlantic planes. Chalk up one for quiet and unspectacular accord among the nations. Charlie's voice, as it came over the radio, was fuzzy, but... Anyway, here's a moment of how he sounded when he called Clipper 6-0 with a weather report. Clipper 6-0, Clipper 6-0, weather ship Charlie, weather ship Charlie. Visibility weather, 12 miles, 12 miles. Temperature, 29. We left Charlie behind in the static and flew on. There were only a couple of hours of full darkness because summer twilight lingers in the northern latitudes and besides, we were racing to meet the sun. Dawn was edging over the horizon just as we began to descend to Ireland. I stood, microphone in hand, behind Captain Smith in the pilot's seat and described, somewhat inelegantly, what I saw. My tone, you'll notice, is fairly dismal, and that's because I was getting tired. You'll hear the captain command the lowering of flaps, meaning wing flaps, which act as brakes on the speed of the plane. Heading down to the soil of Ireland. 80% flaps. 80% flaps. Coming down. 80% flap coming down. On that goes! On that air, Captain. I now see straight ahead of me a parallel row of lights. And a bowling alley lit up. We're heading right for it. There's mist all around it. Darkness. We're heading straight down the alley. 100% flap. 100% flap coming down. Lights way off in the distance. Probably the town of Rhinonea. Rhinonea. Rhinonea, I'm corrected. Shame on me. I've been there before, too. It was raining in Rhinonea, formerly Rhinonea, when we landed. I disembarked. We ate breakfast at the airport and took off again. Ireland drifted under us, then the Irish Sea, then the mountains of Wales, then the tight green Thames country and at last we landed at Heathrow outside London. Behind us was the first leg of the one-world flight. New York, Newfoundland, the Atlantic, Ireland, England, all in slightly under 12 hours.
London was different than when I had seen it last, and the difference was all to the good. There were no barrage balloons overhead, no signs pointing to air raid shelters, no fresh bomb ruins. It was early on a Sunday morning, and as we drove in from the airport, the city was still sleeping and the streets were bare. Hyde Park, in the heart of the town, was quiet as a country dell. Peace, I thought, as I looked about this corner of the world so lately embattled, is pretty wonderful. The British had fought hard for it, and on London, it looked especially becoming. The morning of our arrival was warm and fair, one of the few legitimately summery days in any English year. By night, it was raining, and even indoors, it was chilly. I found people were eating the same cold salmon and Brussels sprouts and generally dull food in the same cold rooms as during the darkest days of 1942, but they seemed fairly cheerful about it. It was now 13 months since the end of the war in Europe, but England was still feeling the pinch. That's the way it is with modern war. There are very few spoils left to the victor. The morning after I arrived, the government announced that the milk ration would be cut, the soap ration reduced by one-seventh, and that rationing of bread would begin soon. I asked a housewife about conditions, a middle-class housewife named Hill, and she was almost gay in her seeming unconcern. She said she was getting one egg every two months and one pint of milk per week. I asked her about the availability and variety of other foods and how the fare compared to the days of the war. She answered... I think it's a little better now. For instance, last week I got two pounds of strawberries, but that's because I have dealt with the same man for eight years. He knows me very well. He goes into the back of the shop and comes out with his finger up to his mouth saying, shush, and he puts something in the bottom of my bag and I can't ask what it is. Same applies to tomatoes, cucumbers, new potatoes, and peas. What, did you ask what the price was? Oh, heavens, no, I wouldn't dare to. But what was the price? I don't know. You mean you will be billed at the end of the month? I shall be billed at the end of the month, and I shall pull up my hands in horror and ask for another box. How long has it been since you had a meal at home, which was um, a really um, filling meal, so that you felt that you might perhaps have to stagger away from the table? Christmas. Last Christmas. Mm. Uh, once a year, then? Well, once a year, yes, but then I, I wangled that. You see, I knew somebody in the country who knew a farmer who sent a goose, and we ate it in one day. Three of us. Twenty-pound goods. Ordinarily, in any season other than Christmas, that would be a rash and impulsive, headstrong... Uh, oh, answer. it certainly would, but you can't get them. This housewife was not a customer of the black market, but she had enough money to be prudent and not ask the price of strawberries. But for the poor in England, as everywhere else, including the United States, there is never a grocer who says shush and put something in the bottom of the bag. There is never the 20-pound goose, not even on Christmas. Beginning in London, clear around the world to Los Angeles, I was to find very few cities where food for the majority of people was ample and varied and cheap. Black markets plenty for those who could pay, but for the low-income bracket it was the old routine, ranging from not quite enough to eat to sheer starvation, as in China and parts of India. But other things besides food were on the minds of the English people and their government at this particular moment, and I set out to learn what a few of them were. I made an appointment to record the Prime Minister, Clement Attlee, at Number 10 Downing Street. 
He received me in the cabinet room where so many decisions fateful to the world have been made in recent history. He was wearing a cardigan sweater, and he puffed a pipe with an expression of deep absorption. It had been previously made clear to me that the Prime Minister had never been recorded in this manner, that, like the President of the United States, he always spoke for radio purposes over several networks, never for an individual one. But in deference to the auspices of the One World Award, an exception was being made in this case. You may remember that not too long ago, tension was high in international relations, and against this background, I asked Mr. Attlee whether he felt there were any indications that the concept of One World could make headway. I don't think we ought to get despondent too early or too easily because of the international difficulties and opposing interests. After all, we're trying to clear up after the greatest war in history. And you can't expect all the problems of that war. And a good many left over from the First World War disappeared overnight. The trouble is, of course, all the differences make the dramatic news. But I think it's worthwhile paying some attention to the areas activity in which there's agreement. Have you any ideas on what I might term the techniques of peace. Well, I think one important thing is, first of all, to realize uh, that uh, there's something quite different in peace from no more war. You continually think of the prevention of war, you don't get very far. You've got to think of positive peace. And that really depends on a greater understanding, not just between governments, but between people. Not just about policies, but about ways of life. And uh, for that, I think, first of all, you want far greater information. And then a realization that we're all engaged on a constructive enterprise as partners and neighbors. Now, that enterprise is quite as exciting and quite as adventurous as anything you ever had in war. We're all engaged in the great adventure of democracy, which is a tremendous adventure. And uh, every nation's got its special contribution to make. And uh, if we consider what contribution we can make, rather than uh, looking at what we think some other nation is not making, I think we should do better. This, then, was a recommendation for self-examination, for self-searching, for beginnings at home. On another level, it was the same thing the young stewardess had said in the cabin of the clipper. I think it's most important that we, uh, shall I say, do our spring house cleaning at home before we try uh, cleaning our neighbor's yards. And in my very next interview in London, this same principle got another vote. I looked up the playwright and novelist J.B. Priestley author of The Good Companions and other works well-known outside his own country. He had just returned from a trip to Scandinavia and the Soviet Union, and I wanted to sound him out on his feelings about the world. He fell in gladly, addressing the microphone as an old friend. In the first place, he said he was bored with all this former diddling about passports and customs, said he wished the nations would hurry up and return to the old days when they didn't bother with that sort of thing. Then he went on to explain what he thought was wrong with the world, and he used psychological terms to state his position. There is a great danger now, I think, of 
what the psychologists call projecting the contents of the unconscious onto the outside world. In other words, instead of trying to understand the other people, you project the contents of the unconscious that you don't like, the evil bit of yourself, onto these other people as if they were a, a blank wall and you were throwing a lantern slide on. And there's a great deal of that happening. I mean, I think one reason why the victorious allies began drawing away from each other the minute their common enemy was defeated, their common enemies, was that they were still busy. They were still in the same psychological mood. And they had to find... They had to invent enemies almost. You, you, you see what... I saw the drift of his remarks and that it, too, was a call for self-examination to find out whether there was some evil bit of ourselves which we were pinning on someone else and then throwing stones at the result. Somehow, the British seemed in a mood to analyze themselves all over the place, to question their own policies at home and abroad. It was not long after I left England that a sweeping investigation of the British press was demanded in Parliament. In my travels about London, I ran into a cabbie who wondered whether Palestine couldn't be made a healthier place for the British Tommy by smarter handling of the problem on the part of the government, though he didn't specify what he meant by smarter handling. I talked with a pub owner who wondered whether Britain, Britain's merchant sailors weren't getting a raw deal. And then there was the writer Westerby who wondered whether his craft had been entirely honorable over the last generation. For the last 25 years, what have we been doing? We've just been working as I wrote in a book once. We've all been working under the light of the red lamp. We sell an idea, we sell a conscience, we sell what we were supposed to save, too many of us, for the money we could pick up playing to what we thought was the public fancy and not taking a chance and not putting forward an idea which might be unpopular. Because if you're a professional writer, you've got to think about your pocket. Well, it's about time professional writers thought more about their conscience and try to say things to each other and to other people instead of saying things to the publisher and ultimately to the bank manager. I left Westerby for an interview with Lord Van Sittart, conservative member of parliament and an outspoken critic of allied policy in Germany and of Russian policy everywhere. We discussed both questions and he was pessimistic about the way things were going in the United Nations. Most of the trouble he blamed on Russia. The only way to treat problems as a whole, he said, was by, quote, revision of the general tendency of Russian policies at the moment, unquote. He was critical of Anglo-American information. His comment is obscured in the recording by a poor power supply, but if you listen very closely, I think you'll be able to make it out. I've always thought that our respective governments might have done more to enlighten the public opinion than they did, and if they had done so, they would have found it much less difficult to frame a policy. On the other hand, he said that the expression, the Iron Curtain, was, quote, rather exaggerated inasmuch as journalists can penetrate in Eastern Europe and move about fairly freely, unquote. But the greatest stress on freedom of information came from the next man I interviewed, Mr. Philip Noel Baker, then Minister of State. He argued that not only must information be free, but uncolored, that it must not be distorted to fit a publisher's or broadcaster's personal political prejudice or angled in the interests of sensationalism and circulation. Our meeting was in the Foreign Office. Mr. Noel Baker, who has since then become Britain's Minister of Air, 
was outspoken about manipulators of public opinion to whom he referred as publicity magnates. I confess that I think most publicity magnates are falling into a very grave error when they believe, as they do believe now, that only quarrels and disputes are news. In our economic and social council work in New York last week, we had many discussions in which every single speech made, whether it was by the United States delegate or by the United Kingdom delegate, or by the Soviet delegate or the Ukraine or Yugoslavia, was in fact a constructive speech intended to help towards a long-term result. And yet, nearly all the newspapers came out day by day, if they mentioned the thing at all, with a heading, Anglo-Soviet clash. And there was indeed a point on which we were not in agreement with the Soviet Union. Taking the discussion as a whole, it was an utter misrepresentation of the facts. In the next sentence, Mr. Noel Baker uses a Latin phrase which you might have trouble catching. Magna est veritas, the truth is great. I don't mind misrepresentation. Magna est veritas, and in the end, it, it will prevail. But what I do mind is the utter stupidity of the publicity magnates in thinking that the people want to go on reading about clashes after eight years of appeasement and six years of total war, they want to hear about constructive efforts. I talked with other people, a bus driver who was worried about the loan from America, which hadn't yet come through, two factory workers who thought Russia was still a pal of theirs, a couple of radio men who thought radio was the only instrument that could make one world, a Gentile doctor who thought that the Jews of Europe were being dreadfully treated. I looked around the city for signs of one world in the theater. There was a Swedish psychological drama playing at the Academy, French light opera at the Adelphia, Italian heavy opera at the Cambridge, an American play, The Hasty Heart, at the Aldrich, and the Russian Brothers Karamazov at the Lyric. I heard the, uh, a Brazilian samba coming from a loudspeaker of a record shop along Charing Cross Road somewhere. was the last Brazilian tune I was to hear until I got to China. I left London taking with me the same impression of a strong and confident British people that I had carried away when I was last among them during a dark period of the war. Although they were questioning and self-critical, they were not, by and large, apprehensive about the peace. They understood that it was going to take not months, but years to put the world together after the staggering disruptions of the war. They were not inventing enemies, though some of them, like Mr. Noel Baker, intimated that certain segments of their press were only too busy doing this for them. Whether or not their leaders were wisely guiding them through the complex problems affecting Palestine, Greece, India, and the world in general, they disagreed. I knew for certain, or thought I knew, that the ideal of one world would not be hard to sell to the tough, war-weary, ration-weary people of England who could use more fuel, better clothes, a lot more varied diet, and a great many more friends. On a gray morning, I drove to Northolt and boarded the Paris plane. 
It took off into a stormy sky, and it flew at low level over the poetic country of Kent and Sussex. We sat on cushioned seats and rode easily through the same skies that had been the greatest aerial battlefield in history. This way had come the Luftwaffe and gone back broken. This way had come the night raiders and the buzz bombs and the V-rockets. This way had gone the Stirlings and Lancasters, the Liberators and B-17s. We crossed the coast at Bexhill and headed for France. The weather over the channel was clear and the water sparkled with a million facets of reflected sunlight. I looked out of the window at the bright strait and found myself thinking of Paddy Finnegan, the Irish ace in the RAF, who died down there one afternoon. There were thousands of fighters like Paddy lying beyond view with the English channel across their chest. I thought of them, and I thought of the many others as we made our landfall on the French town of bitter memory by name Dieppe. And I wondered whether, if those boys could talk, they would go for the idea of a world made one. Listening to Norman Corwin, CBS Playwrights Producer, and first winner of the One World Award in the second of a series of Columbia broadcasts entitled One World Flight. The authentic record of his 37,000-mile global trip. Heard on the first part of the program was Fiorello H. LaGuardia. All voices except those of Mr. Corwin and Mr. LaGuardia, who was heard earlier in the program, were recorded. In tonight's broadcast, the original musical score was composed and conducted by Alexander Semler. Guy Della Chapa was associate director. This is Lee Vines, and this is CBS the Columbia Broadcasting System. One World Flight, the second episode of Norman Corwin's landmark series from the beginning of 1947 and from the big broadcast. I'm Murray Horwitz. Our co-producer is Jill Arold Bailey. Kenny Pirog is the audio engineer. And this is WAMU Washington, celebrating 60 years as your listener-supported NPR news station from American University. In HD at 88.5, on your smart speaker, and at WAMU.org. Every once in a while, the radio shows from the 1930s and 40s will give us a little peek into what the popular theater was like back then. We'll get a bracing play from Orson Welles or hear from a Broadway actor who'd made her way to Hollywood. But right now, we're going to plunge right into it and close tonight's show with a 1940s radio adaptation of a play that was a hit in 1928, just as network radio was getting started. The American theater was quite different back then, dominated by Broadway, with the rest of the country dependent on amateurs, stock companies, and tours. 
cheesy comedies and melodramas played right next to European imports and avant-garde fare on the Great White Way. There were dozens of theaters and literally hundreds of new productions in New York each season. By contrast, in the 2018-2019 season, 38 shows opened on Broadway. 264 plays and musicals appeared there in 1928, some of them quite experimental, including at least one that stood the test of time, Sophie Treadwell's Mackinal. It's an example of what's called expressionist theater, part of a movement that emphasized the active voice of the artists, especially the playwright. It's often characterized by stylized dialogue, a youthful rebellion against kitchen sink realism, and the spiritual life of the characters. As for Miss Treadwell, who was born on this date in 1885, she was a very prolific journalist and playwright, who sometimes produced, directed, and even acted in her own works. She was part of the early 20th century wave of feminism, and her articulation of it is part of what's accounted for the continuing relevance of her greatest success, Machinal. At the turn of this century, it was regularly listed among the greatest plays of the 20th, and it's been produced on Broadway as recently as 2014. It's the story, if that's not putting too fine a point on it, of a woman manipulated by having to follow what's expected of her by society. It may have been inspired by a sensational trial, the Snyder-Gray murder case, but the two stories really have very little in common. The gruesome New York Daily News smuggled photograph of Ruth Snyder's execution is the most famous detail of the case nowadays. You've almost certainly seen it, but we'll put a link to it on our Facebook page in case you haven't. The radio adaptation we're about to hear of Ms. Treadwell's Mackinal comes from a series called Arthur Hopkins Presents, Mr. Hopkins was one of the leading producers and directors in New York, whose hits included works by Eugene O'Neill, Philip Barry, Elmer Rice, and Sophie Treadwell. He directed the original production of Mackinal, and in it, he introduced a young actor named Clark Gable. That's nothing. Six years later, in 1934, he gave Humphrey Bogart his big break in The Petrified Forest on Broadway. His radio version of Machinal starred the play's original leading woman, Zita Johan. You may know her from the Boris Karloff picture, The Mummy, or from one of the most famous and provocative movie posters of all time for The Sin of Nora Moran. Of course we'll post it on our Facebook page. Zita Johan didn't make too many films. She far preferred the theater, where she worked with Orson Welles and his producer, John Hausman, to whom she was married for a time. As for Arthur Hopkins, he's also the host of this wartime broadcast, which unhappily contains some offensive racial epithets that were common back then. Speaking of the changes in the American theater, it's interesting that Mr. Hopkins predicts a decentralization of serious productions across the country. He calls it community theater, but it became a movement that we still refer to as regional theater. It really started with the work of Margot Jones in Dallas in 1947. That was just three years after this broadcast of Sophie Treadwell's Machinal over NBC 
on the day after D-Day in 1944 as part of the series Arthur Hopkins Presents. of the National Broadcasting Company and its independent affiliated stations, Arthur Hopkins presents Sophie Treadwell's Mackinac, starring Zeta Johan of the original production, Sidney Blackburn, who is now appearing on Broadway in Chicken Every Sunday, and Harold Vermillier, who is also appearing on Broadway in Yakovsky and the Colonel. Tonight's production of Mackinac is directed by Wynne Wright from a radio version by Gerald Holland. Now, here is Mr. Hopkins to speak to you. Mackinac, Sophie Treadwell's brilliant dramatization of human frustration, is one of the few important American plays produced in the past 15 years. For 10 years, it has been a permanent part of the repertoire of leading Russian theaters. Thus, theatergoers in far-off Siberia may still see a play long ago abandoned in its own land. In Russia, the theater is regarded as essential cultural element of everyday life. It is more than entertainment or escape. It plays an energetic part in forming the character and thinking of the people. Despite the strains and drains of war, it was insisted that theater continue their full activity. How much this added to the stamina of the people in crisis, we do not know. But it fully reveals the place of the theater as an essential of Russian life. In the not too distant future, the adult theater will be recognized as an important factor in our life. Permanent community theaters with professional companies will be established. This program is already proving the great hunger throughout the country for worthy plays. <coughs> it is my belief that these performances will help create audiences for the community theaters when they are launched. Tonight we are fortunate in having the sensitive and eloquent Zita Johan who created the role of the young victim in the original production of Mackinac. With her are Sidney Blackmer as the man and Harold Vermillier as the husband. So, without the inconvenience of a trip to Russia, in one hour you will know Sophie Treadwell's moving and compassionate Mackinac. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, Mrs. Jones. Miss A isn't in yet? Not yet, Mr. Jay. She's late. When she comes in, tell her I wanted to take a letter. It's important. Miss A, important. And I don't want to be disturbed. You're in conference. I'm in conference. Unless it's A, B, of course. Of course, A, B. And tell Miss A, the early bird catches the worm. <laughs> the early worm gets caught. He's caught. Hooked in the pan. <laughs> oh. I'm late. I'll say you're late. Why are you late? The subway. Stall? I had to get out. Out? Out? Out where? In the air. 
I thought I'd faint. I had to get out in the air. Same thing yesterday and the day before. Yes, what am I going to do? Take a taxi. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. J wants you. Me? Yes, he's bellowing for you. I'll go in. Do you think he'll marry her? If she'll have him. If she'll have him. You think she'll have him? How much does he get? Plenty. Five thousand, ten thousand. And plenty put away. Yes, the third four. Will she Steel have five. him? The green Oil Miss A, my boyfriend's got a friend. Want to come? No, can't. Dave? No, mother. Worry? Nay. Hello, George H. Jones Company. Oh, hello, Lois. Listen, tonight. No, no, no. Wait, Lois. George H. Jones, he likes me, loves me, loves me not, loves me. You're late, my dear. Ah, yes, the subway. Could fire me. He's an old woman. I can be a bride. I can be the bride of a fat old woman. George H. Jones, Mrs. George H. Jones. Dear madam, in reply to your... Why does he want me? He says he loves my hands. Here's a fat hand. Well, my fine lady, how do you think we're going to live if you're too proud to work? Is that the way to talk to your mother, your poor old mother? 96th Street change for express. Don't crowd, don't push. I must get out or I'll scream. All those bodies pressing. I must have air. I don't care if I'm late. I must get out. He's a fine man. He would give me everything. I could rest. I could sleep morning. Did Madam ring? I'll bring your coffee at once, Madam. When he touches me, my blood runs, runs cold. He's a good man. He loves me. Anything to get away from Ma and Ma and subways and offices and cheap places. Maybe I'd get used to it. I wonder if you do. I'll ask Ma. I gotta ask somebody. She's the only person I could ask that. Anybody else would think I was crazy. George H. Jones, Mrs. George H. Jones, dear madam. Mr. Dean, kid, get him in the morning. Hello, hello, hello. Ma, I want to talk to you. Aren't you eating a potato? No. Why not? I don't want one. Why, that's no reason. Here, take one. I don't want it. Potato goes with stew. Here. Ma, I don't want it. Want it. Take it. But I... Oh, all right. Ma, I want to ask you something. Eat your potato. Ma, there's something I want to ask you, something important. There's a garbage. matter now? Nothing. That jumping up from the table every night the garbage is collected? You act like you're crazy. Oh, Ma, don't talk. You just said you wanted to talk. Well, now I want to think. I got to think. Aren't you going to finish your potato? Oh, Ma. Is anything the matter with it? Ma, don't nag. Nag. Just because I try to look out for you. Nag. Just because I try to care for you. Nag. Why, you haven't sense enough to eat. What would become of you? I'd like to know if I didn't nag. I'm grown up, Ma. Grown up. What do you mean by that? Nothing much, I guess. Ma, let's not do the dishes right away. Let's talk. I got him, Ma. Well, I can't talk with dirty dishes around. You may be able to... Ma, but... listen. Listen. There's a man wants to marry me. What man? He says he fell in love with my hands. In love? Well, where'd you meet him? Where'd you, where did you come to know him? In the office. In the office? It's Mr. J. Mr. J? The vice president. Vice president? His income must be... 
Does he know you've got a mother to support? Yes. What does he say? All right. How, how soon are you going to marry him? I'm not going to. Not going to? I don't love him. Love. I don't love him, Ma. Love. Didn't you love Pa? Oh, I suppose I did. Oh, Ma, tell me about it. Tell you what? Tell me love is real, ain't it? It isn't all just you fall in love, don't you? And then your skin oughtn't to curl, ought it? When he just comes near you, ought it? That's wrong, ain't it? You don't get over that, do you? Oh, ever, do you? Or don't you? How is it, Ma, do you? Do you what? Do you get used to it so after a while it doesn't matter, or don't you? Does it always matter? You ought to be in love, oughtn't you, Ma? You must be in love, mustn't you, Ma? That changes everything, doesn't it? Or does it? But I haven't found anybody like that yet. I haven't found anybody. Well, I've hardly known anybody. You'd never let me go out with anybody Are you and... throwing it up to no, me? No, no, I... let me finish, Ma. Let me finish. I just mean I've never found anybody, anybody. Well, nobody's ever asked me till now. Well, he's the only man that's ever asked me. I suppose I've got to marry somebody. All girls do. Oh, nonsense. But I can't go on like this, Ma. I don't know why, but I can't. It's like I'm all tight inside. Sometimes I feel like I'm stifling. Oh, you don't know. Stifling. I can't go on like this much longer. Going to work, coming home, going to work, coming home. I can't. Sometimes in the subway, I think I'm going to die. Sometimes even in the office. If something don't happen, i got to do something. I don't know. It's, it's like I'm all tight inside. You're crazy. Oh, Ma. You're crazy. Ma, if you tell me that again, I'll kill you. I'll well, kill you. If that isn't crazy. I'll kill you. Maybe I am crazy. I don't know. Sometimes I think I am. The thoughts that go on in my mind. Sometimes I think I am. I can't help it if I am. I do the best I can. I do the best I can, and I'm nearly crazy. Go away. Go away. You don't know anything about anything, and you haven't any pity. No pity. You just suck my life, all my youth. I never had any use. Go away. Go away, or I'll kill you. My own child. Oh, oh, oh. oh Ma. Forgive me. Forgive me. I didn't mean it, Ma. I didn't mean it. You're all I've got in the world. You don't want me. You want to kill me. No, no, I don't, Ma. I just said that. I've worked for you and slaved for you. You rest now, Ma. You rest. I... I got to do the dishes. I'll do the dishes. You listen to the music, Ma. I'll do the dishes. I'll get my rubber gloves. The rubber gloves. I've been washing dishes for 40 years, and I never wore gloves. But my lady's hands, my lady's hands. Sometimes you talk to me like you're jealous, Ma. Jealous? It's my hands got me a husband. A husband. So, you're going to marry him now? I suppose so. If you ain't the craziest... <laughs> Yes, sir. Well, here we are. <laughs> yes, sir, here we are. <laughs> oh, anything else, sir? Uh, here. Oh, thank you, sir. Well, here we are. <laughs> yes, here we are. Oh, aren't you going to take off your hat and stay a while? <laughs> yes. Well, this is all right, isn't it? Huh? Huh? Well, it's... Very nice. Twelve bucks a day. They know how to soak you in these pleasure resorts. Twelve bucks. 
Well, we'll get our money's worth out of it, all right. You can't economize on a honeymoon. <laughs> uh, what are you looking at? I thought you said there'd be a view of the ocean. Sure there is. Well, I just see people dancing. The ocean's beyond. I was counting on seeing it. You'll see it tomorrow. What's eating you? We'll take in the boardwalk. Hey, pull down the blind. That music. Young people dancing. Hey, you look a little white around the gills. What's the matter? Nothing. You you look like you're scared. No. Nothing to be scared of? (laughs) You're with your husband. I know. Happy? Yes. Then come over here and give us a kiss. Ah, that's the girlie. <laughs> Say, you've got to learn to relax, little girl. Yes. I... That's one of the biggest things to learn in life. That's part of what I owe my success to. Now you go and change those heavy clothes and relax. Well, I thought maybe... Can't we go out for a little while? Out? What for? For fresh air, walk, and talk. Well, we can talk here. I'll tell you all about myself. Go along now. All right. I'm going to enjoy life from now on. I haven't had such an easy time of it. I got where I am by hard work and self-denial. And now I'm going to enjoy life. I'm going to make up for all I missed. Yes. Next year, maybe we'll go to Paris. You can buy a lot of that French underwear. (laughs) And Switzerland. All my life, I've wanted a Swiss watch that I bought right there. I could have got a Swiss watch here, but I always wanted one that I bought right there. (laughs) Isn't that funny? Huh? Isn't it? Huh? Huh? Yes. All my life, I've wanted a Swiss watch that I bought right there. Hey, uh, what's keeping you? Here I am. Well, and don't you look pretty. Here, give us a kiss. (laughs) Hey, you're crying. What are are you crying for? Ma, Ma, I want my mother. Well, I thought you were glad to get away from her. I want her now. I want somebody. You got me, haven't you? Somebody. Somebody. There's nothing to cry about. There's nothing to cry about. <laughs> How are you feeling today? Better? No pain? You're getting along fine. Such a sweet baby you have, too. Aren't you glad of the girl? You're not? Oh, my, that's no way to talk. Men want boys. Women ought to want girls. Anything else you want? What? The noise. The riveting. Oh, that can't be helped. Hospitals got to have a new wing. We're the biggest maternity hospital in the world. I'll close the window. No? I, I smell everything, man. Here's your man. Well, how are you today? She's getting stronger. Uh, of course she is. See what your husband brought you. Yeah, better put him in water right away. Yes, sir. Oh. Everything Okay. Oh, see here, my dear, you got to brace up, you know, and, and face things. Everybody's got to brace up and face things. That'll make the world go round. I know all that you've been through, but... Oh, yes, I do. I know all about it. I was right outside all the time. Hey, but you've got to brace up now. Make an effort. Pull yourself together. Start the uphill climb. Oh, I've been down, but I haven't stayed down. I've been licked, but I haven't stayed licked. 
I pulled myself up at my own bootstraps. And that's what you've got to do. Willpower. That's what conquers. Look at me. Now you got to brace up, face the music, stand the gaff, take life by the horns, look it in the face. Having a baby's natural, perfectly natural thing. Now, why should you... What's the matter? She's got that choking again, like she had the last time I was You'd here. You'd better go, sir. I'll, I'll be back. She needs rest. Tomorrow, then. I'll be back tomorrow. Tomorrow and every day. Goodbye. You got a mighty nice husband. I guess you know that. Uh, how's the little lady today? She's better, doctor. Of course she's better. She's all right, aren't you? What's the matter? Can't you talk? Oh, she's a little weak yet, doctor. Bring the baby. Oh. oh. Well, that's strong enough. I thought we were too weak to talk. That's better. You don't want your baby? No. What do you want? Let alone. Let alone. Bring the baby. Oh, yes, Doctor. She's behaved very badly every time, Doctor. Very upset. Maybe we'd better not. I decide what we'd better and better not hear, nurse. Yes, Doctor. Bring the baby. I'll look in later. Yes, Doctor. Right away. Oh, let me alone. Let me alone. Let me alone. I've submitted to enough. I was dead. I was climbing the golden stairs. I met my baby coming down. All the dead going up to heaven to rest. And all the babies coming down to earth to be born. Dead going up. Babies coming down. I can't go on. Oh, let me alone. Let me alone. I'm going to beat it. Oh, for the love of Mike, stick around. Have they a drink. They show. Oh, sure, they'll show. How do you know they'll show? I tell you, you can't keep that baby away from me. Just got to... She comes a-running. Looks like it. I'm going to beat it. Oh, for the love of Mike, have a heart. Listen, there's a favor to me. I got to be home by six. I promised my wife, sure. That doesn't leave me no time at all if I got to hang around entertaining some dame. You got to take her off my hands. Maybe she won't fall for me. Sure, she'll fall for you. They all fall for you. Hey, hey, here they come. Good night. Good night? What's eating you? Nothing's eating me. Thought something must have swallowed you. Why? You're late. <laughs> Mrs. Jones, Mr. Smith. Yeah, meet my friend, Mr. Rowe. Uh, waiter, two more. Well, so we kept you waiting, did we? About an hour. Dick was about ready to beat it. That's before I met the little lady. Here's how. Here's to you. Here's looking at you. Here's happy days. <laughs> That's good stuff. Yeah, off a boat. Off a boat? Yeah, they get all this stuff here off a boat. Yeah, that's what they say. Oh, sure, sure they do, sure. All right, it's all right with me. Yeah, but they do, sure. I believe you, honey. Well, baby, how are they coming, huh? Couldn't do better. How's every little thing? Just great. Miss me? I'll say so. When did you get in? Oh, just a couple of hours ago. Miss me? Did I? Hey, you don't know the half of it. Well, then tell me, tell me, spill it. Yeah. Let's beat it. We just got here. Yeah, don't I know it? Come on. But, but, but what about them? Oh, they're all set. Now, aren't you? Are we? Oh, I, I, I got to be out the house by six. Come on. Oh, come on, kid. Let's beat it. Business is business, you know. I got a lot to do yet this afternoon. Thought you might like to go along with me. Help me out. <laughs> How about it? Oh, sure. Sure, I'll go along with you. Help you out? Yeah, all right with you folks? All right with me. 
Uh, I know what business is like. You do, do you? Uh, I used to be a business girl myself before... Before what? Before I quit. What'd you quit for? I just quit. You're married, huh? Yes, I, I am. It's all right with me. Oh, Dick. Dick, don't forget about tomorrow. Okay. Say, get this bird to tell you about himself. Get him to tell you how he killed a couple of spicks down in Mexico. Yeah, come on, kid. Okay. You killed a man? Oh, two of them, with a bottle. Get him to tell you, with a bottle. Come on, kid, come on. Uh, goodbye. So long. Why did you? What? Kill him. To get free. Oh, they're a bunch of banditos, bandits, you know. Took me into the hills, holding me there. What was I to do? I got the two birds that guarded me drunk one night, and then I filled the empty bottles with small stones and let them have it. I had to get free, didn't I? Uh, you don't You don't have to have a gun to kill a man. You Just a bottle and some stones. Oh, I... then what did you do? Then I beat it. Where to? Right here. You glad? Uh, yes, Necessity, you know, mother of invention. Ain't a bad weapon. First you got a sledgehammer, then you got a knife. Oh. Women don't like knives, do they? No. <laughs> don't mind a hammer so much, though, do you? No. <laughs> I didn't like it myself, any of it. But I had to get free, didn't I? I sure had to get free, didn't I? Now I'm glad I did. Why? You know why. Let's go. Where? You haven't been around much, have you, kid? No. I could tell that just to look at you. You could? Sure I could. Hey, what are you running around with a girl like that other one for? I don't know. She she seems to have a good time. So that's it. Doesn't she? Well, don't you? No. Never? Never. What's the matter? Nothing. Just me, I guess. Oh, you're all right. Do you like me? Like you? You don't know the half of it. Listen, you know what you seem like to me? What? An angel. Just like an angel. I do? That's what I said. Let's go. All right. Hey, wait a minute, I gotta pay the damage. Well, I'll get a bottle of something to take along to my place. No, don't. Why not? Uh, well, uh, don't bring any pebbles. Say, forget that, will you? I just mean <laughs> I don't think I'll need anything to drink. You like me, don't you, kid? Do you, me? Sure. Sure I do, kid. You're awfully still, honey. What are you thinking about? About seashells. She, 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 I can't even say it. <laughs> when I was little, my grandmother used to have a big pink seashell on the mantel behind the stove. When we'd go to visit her, they'd let me hold it and listen. That's what I was thinking about now. Yeah? You can hear the sea in them, you know. Yeah, I know. Wonder why that is. Search me. You got mighty pretty hands, honey. This little pig went to market... This little pig stayed home. This little pig went to... Went diddle-dee-diddle-dee-dee. <laughs> you got awful pretty hands. I used to have, but I haven't taken much care of them lately. I will now. What's that? What? That music. It's a hand organ. I gave him two bits the first day I got here, so he comes every day. I mean, 
What's that he's playing? Cielita Lindo. What does that mean? Little Heaven. Little Heaven? That's what lovers call each other in Spain. Oh, Spain's where all the castles are, ain't it? Yeah. Little Heaven. Sing it. De la Sierra Morene Viene Bahanda Viene Bahanda What does it mean? From the high, dark mountains. From the high, dark mountains. Oh, it doesn't mean anything. It don't make sense. It's love. I know what that means. What? Ay, 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 ay. Say, sing it. Don't cry. You got a nice voice, honey. Have I? You bet you have. Hey. Are you ticklish? <laughs> sure I am. Hey. <laughs> Come on, honey, sing something. Oh, I couldn't. Come on, you got a fine voice. Oh. <laughs> hey, diddle, diddle, the cat and the fiddle, the cow jumped over the moon. The little dog laughed to see such food, and the dish ran away with a spoon. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought that had any sense before. Now I get it. You got me beat. It's you and me. You're the dish, and I'm the spoon. You're a little spoon, all right. And I guess I'm the little cow that jumped over the moon. Do you believe in sort of guardian angels? What? Guardian angels. I don't know. Maybe. I do. Well, there must be something that looks out for you and brings you your happiness at last. Well, look at us. How did we both happen to go to that place today if there wasn't something? Well, maybe you're right. Look at us. Everything's us to you, kid, ain't it? Well, ain't it? It's all right with me. We belong to each other. We belong together and we're going to stick together, ain't we? Sing something else. Oh, I tell you, I can't sing. Sure you can. I tell you, I haven't thought of singing since I was a little bit of a girl. Well, sing anyway. <laughs> and every little wavelet had its nightcap on, its nightcap, white cap, nightcap on. And every little wavelet had its nightcap on, so very, very early in the morning. <laughs> Did you used to sing that when you were a little kid? No. Didn't you? We used to... In the first grade, little kids, we used to go round and round in a ring and flop our hands up and down, supposed to be the waves. I remember it used to confuse me because we did just the same thing to be little angels. Yeah. <laughs> you know why I came here? I can make a good guess. Because you told me I looked like an angel to you. That's why I came. Honey, all women look like angels to me. All white women. I ain't been seeing nothing but Indians, you know, for the last couple of years. You've known a lot of women, haven't you? Not so many real ones. Did you like any of them better than me? Nope. I wasn't one of them any sweeter than you, honey. Not as sweet. No, not as sweet. I like to hear you say it. Say it again. Oh. Go on, tell me again. Yeah. Does that tell you? Yes. We're going to stick together always, aren't we? I'll have to be moving on, kid, someday, you know. When? Kin Sabi. What's that mean? Oh, you got to learn that, kid, if you're figuring on coming with me. It's the answer to everything below the Rio Grande. Well, what does it mean? means, who knows? Kin Sabi? <laughs> yep, don't forget it now. I'll never get below the Rio Grande. I'll never get out of here. Kin Sabi. That's right. Kin Sabi. Who knows? <laughs> That's the stuff. You must like it down there. Can't live anywhere else for long. 
Why not? Oh, you're free down there. You're free. What's that? It's just a street light going on. Is it as late as that? Late as what? Dark. Oh, it's been dark for hours. Didn't you know that? No, I must go. Wait, the moon will be up in a little while. Full moon. Oh, it isn't that. I'm late. I must go. What's that? What? On the window ledge. The flower. Who gave it to you? Nobody gave it to me. I bought it. For yourself? Sure. Why not? I don't know. Chinatown. Made me think of Frisco where I was a kid. So I bought it. Is that where you were born? Frisco? Yep. Twin Peaks. What's that? A couple of hills together. Uh, one for you and one for me. <laughs> I bet you'd like Frisco. Oh, I know a woman went out there once. The bay and the hills. That's the life. Every Saturday we used to cross the bay, get a couple of nags, and just ride over the hills. One would have a blanket on the saddle and the other the grub. At night, we'd make a little fire and eat and then roll up in the old who, blanket. Who was with you? Anybody. You're looking good shape, kid. A couple of months riding over the mountains with me, you'd be great. Can I? What? Someday ride mountains with you? Ride mountains, ride donkeys. Oh, it's the same thing with you. Can I someday? The high, dark mountains? Who knows? Oh, it must be great. You ever been off like that, kid? High up on top of the world? Yes. When? Today. You're pretty sweet. I never knew anything like this was. I never knew that I could feel like this so... so purified. <laughs> oh, don't laugh at <laughs> no, I ain't, I ain't laughing, honey. Purified. It's a hell of a world, but I know what you mean. That's the way it is sometimes. Well, goodbye. Hey, ain't you forgetting something? No, uh, I'm not forgetting. Can I have that lily? Sure, why not? Goodbye. Goodbye, honey. Pause briefly for station identification. W-E-A-F, New York. Then it's all settled. Everything signed? Tell Williams to call me up. Well, it's all settled. <laughs> now watch me. Did you put it over? <laughs> Did I put it over? Sure I put it over. Did you swing it? Sure I swung it. Did they come through? Sure they came through. Did they sign? <laughs> I'll say they signed. On the dotted line? On the dotted line. The property's yours? The property's mine. I put a first mortgage. I put a second mortgage. The property's mine. I put it over. I sold them in the idea. <laughs> I put it through. <laughs> hey, you, you don't seem to care. What are you looking at? Nothing. Huh. Must be looking at something. Nothing. The moon. Well, the moon's something, isn't it? Yes. What's it doing? Nothing. Well, must be doing something. It's moving. Moving. Hello? Yeah, hello, Phillips. Well, I put it over. Yeah. <laughs> I swung it. Sure, they came through. Did they sign? Well, ask me. Right on the dotted line. <laughs> the property's mine. I made the proposition. I sold them the idea. Now watch me. 
Yeah, I'll see you tomorrow. Uh, tell Evans to call me up. That was Phillips. And wasn't he surprised? <laughs> Say, you know, I'm not so sure about Mrs. Phillips. I think she's a little gay. Oh, really? Sure. <laughs> I guess I'm lucky. It's a lucky man these days who has a wife he can be sure of. What's the matter? Nothing. There must be something. My, but you're nervous tonight. I try not to be. Well, you are. Well, I try not to show it. You inherit that from your mother. She was in the office today. Today? Sure. It's the first of the month, ain't it? Oh, oh, yes. <laughs> the old girl never wastes any time collecting her allowance. Oh, Ma. And she's coming over tomorrow to see the baby. She gets a lot of comfort out of that kid. A mother's a very precious thing. A good mother. Well, I try to be. I try. Who was saying anything about you? Of course you're a good mother. Well, why wouldn't you be? Good home, husband who does everything for you, and a fine child? Yes, uh, I have everything. I should be thankful. We should both be thankful. And now this big deal going through, well, I guess we're what you call sitting pretty. Do you think we could go away for a little while? What? Me get away now? With this deal just going through? It'll be me with the old nose to the grindstone for a long time now. Well, maybe Ma and the baby and I could go to the seashore. I've been feeling terribly nervous lately. Sometimes I get scared. Scared? <laughs> scared of what? I don't know, just scared. <laughs> oh, there's nothing the matter with you. Uh, what fun would you have going away with just your mother and the baby? Oh, wait, child, just wait. I'll take you on a real trip. We'll, we'll go to Europe and see the whole show. England, France, Italy, Switzerland. I always wanted to buy a Swiss watch in Switzerland. <laughs> Funny the ideas you get. <laughs> We can't go, then. Oh, you don't want to go away now. Wait for me, and we'll do it right. And let's see. Uh, anything in the paper? <laughs> Another revolution in Mexico. Anybody hurt? Any Americans? No, sirree. I guess those greasers know now that your Uncle Sam is keeping an eye on things. Someday we'll go in and straighten out that country for good. No business sense. No efficiency. Huh. I think I'll go to bed. Oh, it's early. It's only uh, 1046. I don't want to go yet. Maybe somebody else will call me up about that deal. Well, you can stay up. Yeah, and if you fall asleep, I won't be able to wake you up. I know you. <laughs> Come on, sit down. We'll both go to bed before long. I'm tired. Come on, sit down and rest. Yeah, yeah well, want anything to read? No. Yeah? Before this country gets through, there'll be peace all over the world. The world's spiritual leader. That's what we'll be. Hmm. There were a bunch of banditos bandit, you know, took me into the hills, holded me there. What was I to do? I got the two birds that guarded me drunk one night, and then I filled the empty bottles with small stones and let them have it. Had to get free, didn't I? I let them have it. You don't have to have a gun to kill a man, just a bottle and some stones.
bottle, new stone, headstone, old bottle, new stone, stepping stone. Defense ready to proceed. We're ready, Your Honor. Proceed. Gentlemen of the jury, you have heard the case of the prosecution. You have heard the witnesses for the prosecution. Not many of them, it is true, and with not very much that is pertinent to say. I object, Your Honor. Objection sustained. Gentlemen of the jury, you have heard my client accused of the willful, cold-blooded, and brutal murder of her husband. This little woman, this young mother... This devoted wife, this filial daughter... I object, Your Honor, irrelevant, immaterial... Objection sustained. Proceed with your witnesses. Ellen Jones. Ellen Jones. Mrs. Jones, will you take the stand? The defense sprang a surprise at the opening of court this morning by putting the accused woman on the stand. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you, God. I do. You may see. Ellen Jones, accused of the murder of her husband, George H. Jones, walked calmly to the witness stand... What is your name? Ellen Jones. Your age? Twenty-nine. Where do you live? In prison. Mrs. Jones, you are the widow of the late George H. Jones, are you not? Yes. How long were you married to the late George H. Jones before his demise? Six years. In those six years of married life with your late husband, the late George H. Jones, did you ever have a quarrel? No, sir. You have one child, have you not, Mrs. Jones? Yes, sir. A little girl, is it not? Yes, sir. How old is she? She's five. Past five. Since the demise of the late Mr. Jones, you are the only parent she has living, are you not? Yes, sir. Where is she now, this child? Robbed by fate of a father's protection and by law, I do not say justice, of a mother's devotion. Where is she now? With my mother. Your mother. Before your marriage to the late Mr. Jones, you worked and supported your mother, did you not? I object, Your Honor. Irrelevant, immaterial. Objection sustained. In order to support your mother and yourself as a girl, you worked, did you not? Yes, sir. What did you do? I was a stenographer. And you continued to work continuously in the support of your mother and yourself from the time you were 15 until the date of your marriage. Is that true, Mrs. Jones? Yes. By what firm were you last employed before your marriage to the late Mr. Jones? By his. By the firm of which he was the head, is that right? No, he was the vice president. And when you married him, you were your mother's sole support, were you not? Yes, sir. And since your marriage, you have continued as her sole support, have you not? Mr. Jones did, uh, yes. But because you, uh, through you, was it not? Yes, sir. A devoted daughter, gentlemen of the jury as well as a devoted wife and a devoted mother. Your Honor. And now, Mrs. Jones, I will ask you, the law expects me to ask you, it demands that I ask you this one last question, this brutal, heartless question. Did you or did you not, on the night of June 2nd last or the morning of June 3rd last, kill your husband, the late George H. Jones? Did you or did you not? 
I did not. You did not? I did not. Now, Mrs. Jones, you have heard the witnesses for the state accuse you of deliberately murdering your own husband by brutally hitting him over the head with a bottle, a bottle filled with small stones. Did you? I repeat this, or did you not? I did not. You did not. Of course you did not. Now, Mrs. Jones, will you tell the jury in your own words uh, exactly what happened on the night of June 2nd or the morning of June 3rd last at the time your husband was killed? Well, uh, I was awakened by hearing something, somebody in the room, and I saw two men standing by my husband's bed. I see. And what did you do, Mrs. Jones, when you suddenly awoke and saw two big, dark-looking men standing beside your bed? Well, uh, I didn't do anything. I... You didn't have time to do anything, did you? No. Why? Well, because before I could do anything, one of them raised something in his hand and struck Mr. Jones over the head with it. And what did Mr. Jones do? He gave a sort of groan and tried to raise up. Tried to raise up? Yes. And then what happened? The man struck him again and he fell back. I see. Uh, what did the men do then, the big, dark-looking men? They turned and ran out of the room. I see. Uh, what did you do then, Mrs. Jones? Well, I saw Mr. Jones was bleeding from the temple. I got towels and tried to stop it. And then I realized he'd passed away. I see. And what did you do then? Well, I, I didn't know what to do, but I thought I'd better call the police. So I went to the telephone and called the police. Well, what happened then? Well, nothing. Nothing happened. The police came, didn't they? Yes, they came. And that is all you know concerning the death of your husband in the late hours of June 2nd or the early hours of June 3rd last, isn't it? Yes. All? Yes. Take the witness. The defense finished their direct examination. The accused woman told a straightforward story. The accused woman told a rambling, disconnected story. Mrs. Jones, will you describe for the jury more fully just how these big, dark-looking men looked? Well, I, I didn't see them very well. I, I said that I told the police that. You made no effort to cry out, Mrs. Jones, did you? When you saw those two big dark men standing over your helpless husband, did you? No, sir, I didn't. And when the two big dark-looking men turned and ran out of the room, you made no effort to follow them or cry out after them, did you? No, sir. Why didn't you? Well, I, I saw Mr. Jones was hurt. Ah, you saw Mr. Jones was hurt. You saw this. How'd you see it? Well, I just... Saw it. There was a light in the room? Yes, the moon. The moon? Yes, it was a bright moon. It was a bright moon. You're sure of that? Yes. How are you sure? Well, I couldn't sleep. I, I never can sleep in the bright moon. I, I never can. You were not asleep then when... Yes, yes, then I was, but before I, I wasn't. Well, when did you go to bed? Do you remember that? Yes, sir. At 11.12. You're quite sure it couldn't have been 11.11 or 11.13? No, sir. 11.12. And how do you know it was exactly 11-12? Well, Mr. Jones said so. Ah, on the night he was to be murdered, Mr. Jones said... He always said it. Said what? Said what time it was when he went to bed. And you had perfect confidence in your husband, didn't you, Mrs. Jones? When he told you 11-12, you knew it was 11-12. Yes, he, he always kept the correct time. He was very particular about that. He was counting on going to Switzerland someday and buying a Swiss watch right there. So it was 11-12. Yes. Mrs. Jones. How does it happen, since it was your husband's custom to announce the time every night, that you so clearly noted the time on this particular night? I don't know. Mrs. Jones, was it because you knew as he stood there before you and looking at his watch that he was doing it for the last time? No, no, no. Was it because you knew that in the morning he would lie murdered? No, no, I object, no. Your Honor. I object. Objection sustained. 
Now to resume. As I understand you, Mrs. Jones, you say you could not see the two men very well, but you could see your husband bleeding from the temple. You say you saw that. Yes, I, I said I saw that. And did you see it? Yes. And did you call a doctor? No. Why didn't you? Well, uh, the police did. But you didn't? No. Why didn't you? Why didn't you? I saw it was useless. Ah, you saw that. You saw that very clearly. Yes. Mrs. Jones, did you ever see this before? I think so. You think so? Yes. What do you think it is? I think it's the bottle that was used against Mr. Jones. Used against him? Yes, that's right. You've guessed right. This neck and these broken pieces and these pebbles were found on the floor and scattered over the bed. There were no fingerprints on this bottle, Mrs. Jones, none at all. Doesn't that seem strange to you? No. It doesn't seem strange to you that this bottle held in the big dark hand of one of those big dark men left no mark, no print? That doesn't seem strange to you? No. You're in the habit of wearing rubber gloves at night, Mrs. Jones, are you not? To protect, to soften your hands, are you not? Well, I... I used to. Used to? When was that? Before I was married. And after your marriage, you gave it up? Yes. Why? Mr. Jones didn't like the feel of them. You always did everything Mr. Jones wanted? I tried to, anyway. I didn't care anymore so much about my hands. I see. So after your marriage, you never wore gloves at night anymore? No. Mrs. Jones, isn't it true that you began wearing your rubber gloves again in spite of your husband's expressed dislike? About a year ago, a year ago this spring? No. You did not suddenly begin to care particularly for your hands again? About a year ago this spring? No. You're quite sure of that? Yes. Quite sure? Yes. Then you did not have in your possession on the night of June the 2nd last a pair of rubber gloves? No. I'd like to introduce these gloves in evidence at this time, Your Honor. Exhibit 24. I'll return to them later. Now, Mrs. Jones, uh, this nightgown, you recognize it, don't you? Yes. Yours, is it not? Y- yes. The one you were wearing the night your husband was murdered, isn't it? The night he died, yes. This was found not where the gloves were found, no. But at the bottom of the soiled clothes hamper in the bathroom, rolled up and wet. Why was it wet, Mrs. Jones? Well, I, I tried to wash it. Why? There was blood on it. Spattered on it? Yes. How did that happen? Well, the bottle broke and the sharp edge cut. Oh, the bottle broke and the sharp edge cut. Yes, that's what they told me afterwards. Who told you? The police, that's what they say happened. Mrs. Jones. Why did you try so desperately to wash that blood away before you called the police? I object. Objection overruled. Why, Mrs. Jones? I don't know. It's what anyone would have done, wouldn't they? Well, that depends, doesn't it? Mrs. Jones, when did you first see this bottle? The night my husband was done away with. Done away with? You mean kill? Yes. Oh, why don't you say kill? It sounds so brutal. And you never saw this before then? No, sir. You're quite sure of that? Yes. And these stones, they were found with the bottle. When did you first see them? The night my husband was done away with. Mrs. Jones, do you remember about a year ago, a year ago this spring, bringing to your house a lily, a Chinese water lily? No, I I don't think I do. I'll show you this bowl, Mrs. Jones. Does that refresh your memory? Uh, I remember the bowl, but I, I don't remember the lily. You recognize the bowl, then? Yes. It is yours, isn't it? It was in my house, yes. How did it come there? How did it come there? Yes, where did you get it? Uh, I don't remember. You don't remember? No. You don't remember about a year ago bringing this bowl into your bedroom filled with small stones and some water and a water lily? 
You don't remember tending very carefully that lily till it died? And when it died, you don't remember hiding the bowl and keeping it there until... You don't remember? No, I... I don't remember. You don't remember the lily or the stone? No. No, I, I don't. Your Honor... I'd like to introduce this paper in evidence at this time. What is it? It's an affidavit taken in the state of Guanajuato, Mexico. It's signed by one Richard Rowe. And its purpose is to refresh the memory of the witness on the point at issue. And incidentally, a motive for this murder. This brutal and cold-blooded murder of a sleeping man I like... protest, Your Honor. I object. Let me see the document. Perfectly regular. Do you offer this affidavit in evidence at this time for the purpose of refreshing the memory of the witness at this time? Yes, Your Honor. You may introduce the evidence. Why is this witness himself not brought into court so he can be cross-questioned? The witness is a resident of the Republic of Mexico and as such is not subject to subpoena as a witness to this court. Proceed with the evidence. <clears throat> the affidavit reads, In the matter of the state versus Helen Jones, I, Richard Rowe, being of sound mind do herein depose and state that I know the accused Helen Jones and have known her for a period of over one year immediately preceding the date of the signature of this affidavit, that I first met the said Helen Jones in a so-called speakeasy somewhere in the West 40s in New York City, that on the day I met her, she went with me to my apartment also somewhere in the West 40s in New York City, <gasps> and where I gave her a blue bowl filled with pebbles, also containing a flowering lily, that from the first day we met until I departed from Mexico in the fall, the said Helen Jones was an almost daily visitor to my apartment. No, no. What is it, Mrs. Jones? What is it? Don't read any more. No more. Why not? I did it. I did it. I did it. You confess? Yes, I, I did it. it. You confess you killed your husband? I put him out of the way. Yes. Why? To be free. To be free? Is that the only reason? Yes. If you just wanted to be free, why didn't you divorce him? I couldn't do that. I couldn't hurt him like that. <laughs> Silence. Silence! Mrs. Jones, why? Why? Your Honor, I ask a recess. Court's adjourned. <laughs> face away from me. In the day when I am in trouble, incline thy ear to me. In what day soever I shall call upon thee, hear me speedily, for my days are vanished like smoke. Stop that guy yelling. No, let him sing. He helps me. You can't hear the father. He helps me. Don't I help you, daughter? I understand him. I understand him. He's condemned. Father. Father. Why was I born? I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I leave the world and go unto the Father. When I'm dead, won't I have peace? Ye shall indeed drink of my cup. Will I have peace tomorrow? Life has been a hell to me, Father. Because you never knew God? I, I thought something. I was always seeking something. What? What were you seeking? Peace. Rest and peace. <laughs> 
Will I find it tonight, Father? Your sins Will are I forgiven. Find it? Your sins are forgiven. And that other sin, that other sin, that sin of love, that's all I ever knew of heaven. Heaven on earth. How is that, Father? How can that be? A sin, a mortal sin, all I know of heaven. Who's that woman? Your mother. Your mother. She's come to say goodbye. She's a stranger. Take her away. She's a stranger. She's come to say goodbye to you. To say goodbye. She's never known me. Never known me, ever. Go away. You're a stranger. 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 Oh, mother. Mother. My child. My child. Come, daughter. It's time. Wait. Mother. My child. My little strange child. I never knew her. She'll never know me. Let her live, mother. Let her live. Live. Tell her. Come, daughter. Wait, wait. Tell her. Goodbye, daughter. It's time. Wait, wait. Tell her. Wait. Just a minute more. She looks. She's gotten smaller. Saint Philip, pray for us. All ye holy patriarchs and prophets. Saint Philip, Saint Matthew, Saint Simon, Saint Thaddeus. All ye holy apostles. All ye holy disciples. All ye holy innocents. Pray for us. Pray for us. Pray for us. Suppose the machine shouldn't work. It'll work. It always does. Saints of God, make it. Her lips are moving. What is she saying? I wonder. She walks alone. Doesn't want them to help her. Now she sits alone. Yes. A lonesome seat. How calm she is. And beautiful. God, what waste. Thou shalt not kill. Not unless you're the state. The sovereign state. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Vengeance is mine, says the state. The sovereign state. What does she see? Something beautiful. Her face glows. She's listening. What does she hear? Something beautiful. State wins. Yes. It's over. She kept listening to the end. I wonder what she heard.
I convey your thanks to Sophie Treadwell, Zita Johan, and the cast for a beautiful theater experience. Next week, we bring you Grace George in Somerset Mom's The Circle with Cecil Humphreys, Horace Braham, and Edgar Staley. Thank you, and good night. Thank you, Mr. Hopkins. Tonight's production of Macanal by Sophie Treadwell was directed by Wynne Wright from a radio version by Gerald Holland and starred Zeta Johan, Sidney Blackmer, and Harold Vermillier. Others in the cast included Gina Dare, John Connery, Ida Heineman, Dorothy Knox, Charles Kennedy, Hal Dawson, James MacDonald, Eugene Earle, Carl Weber, and John Sylvester. Music was written and directed by Morris Mamorsky. is the National Broadcasting Company. Machinal, Sophie Treadwell's landmark play, still produced at theaters around the world and adapted for television a couple of times, as it appeared on radio's Arthur Hopkins Presents, starring Zita Johan on June 7, 1944. It brings us to the end of the big broadcast tonight. For co-producer Jill Arald Bailey and audio engineer Kenny Pirog. This is Murray Horwitz. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And please join us here next Sunday. Good night, everybody. I love to spend each Sunday with you. As friend of friend, I'm sorry it's through. I'm telling you just how I feel. I hope you feel that way too Let's make a date for next Sunday night I'm here to stay Twill be my delight To sing again, bring again The things you want me to I love to spend each Sunday with you.